John Kapler. Sorry, John Kapler. Here. Kristen Lovelady Dixon. Here. Betsy Pringle. <clears throat> Here. Larry Totally. Here. Rick Whitney. Here. And Ruth Ray. Here. Thanks. Hi, Jeannie. Hi. <laughs> so, um, for for starters, we're going to. Uh, I'm going to ask for a motion to modify our agenda. Our current agenda has us uh, with uh, reading and approval of minutes. There are none to approve. Then we have council member reports and comments, followed by a work program review request from the audience. And uh, that agenda says limited to five minutes. We are going to make it three minutes, uh, which is what we've had historically. But we, <clears throat> when we don't have a lot of comments. We, we've allowed five, but we're going to keep it to three tonight. And uh, then I, the modification, in addition to limiting our request from the audience to, five, to three minutes, I would like to have that moved behind uh, the new business on the potential purchase of La Quinta Hotel. My rationale for that is um, I would really like to have as many questions answered before the public uh, is giving us their comments and hopefully it might help our, our comment period be a little more efficient and effective. And so I think it'd be a better way to do it for tonight's meeting. Um, and then after that, we have the final action on the miscellaneous zoning code amendments. And that's it. So I would uh, welcome a motion to modify the agenda to uh, move the request from the audience to after the new business and limiting it to three minutes. So is there a second? Second. Okay, we've got a movement motion and a second to uh, modify the agenda as stated. All in favor say aye. 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 Opposed? Great. Thank you, guys. So uh, with that, we have council member reports and comments, which includes this discussion of the or some comments on the purchase of La Quinta Hotel. But there are other things we have going on. So I'm going to open it up to other council members to give us whatever comments they have or reports they have on any topics related to Houghton Community Council. Anybody have something? John, would you care to say anything about what's the process going, how the process of proceeding on, on the uh, legislature's efforts to sunset the Houghton Community Council? Um, yes, thank you, Rick. Um, uh, from a reporting standpoint, I know that the uh, Houghton Community Council members have been uh, working with the legislature arguing our points. The city of Kirkland has been arguing their points. There are many sides to the issue of whether or not House Bill 1769 should be passed sunsetting the municipal corporations of which there's two left in the state. And um, uh, I just want to implore those involved to stay involved in the public process to be as open and transparent as possible. I think the city council understands that the Houghton Community Council feels that they have not been so, um, which I believe is a tragedy for our system. And um, so uh, we'll just let the process work and take the actions as, uh, as needed. Thank you, Rick. Thank you, John. I thought that was too important not to at least bring up. Uh, and then for the 
the uh, La Quinta situation, um, I, I just should introduce how it even came to be on our agenda because I added it, I asked to add it to the agenda. It wasn't originally part of our agenda. Um, and the situation was I expected that there was gonna be some city involvement in this process um, before an actual acquisition occurred for a variety of reasons. And um, when it became apparent that there wasn't gonna, the city wasn't gonna be um, doing that, I talked to Jim Lopez and he was very accommodating and said, hey, you know, you have a good point to at least have an opportunity for, for um, a presentation on this topic and to have people be able to, to speak to it. So um, that's how it came to be. Um, the county is the lead agency. And uh, so we'll be hearing from them. I guess that's correct, isn't it, Jim? That they will? Yeah, great. Um, so we'll hopefully get more information, questions answered, and uh, give the public an opportunity to, to be heard. So that- uh, I just want to point out for all those listening and for the record, this is not a public hearing. No, that's correct. Yeah. This is a courtesy conversation yep. only. Absolutely. Yep. Thank <clears throat> you. Thank you for, for my, that. and John and Jim, I appreciate you confirming that. <laughs> so with that, um, I think we're, we, uh, Jeremy, do we have any work program review topic, anything to discuss with that? Oh, nothing this evening. Okay, great. So I think with that, we'll move into our new business, uh, potential purchase of La Quinta Hotel by King County for permanent supportive housing. And Jim, are you leading that discussion? Or is Leo? Thank you very much, Mr. Chair, Whitney. Uh, and thank you everybody for having us tonight. I, I am Jim Lopez, the deputy city, one of two deputy city managers at the city. My portfolio is external affairs. So thank you very much for inviting us tonight. I am gonna turn the floor over to Leo Floor from King County who runs the um, Permanent Supportive Housing Program. And he's gonna provide you with a presentation. Thank you so much, Leo, for doing that. And then it's back over to you, Mr. Chair. I mean, we're here from the city, Jeremy and I to answer questions from the city's perspective and the city's role. And Leo's here from the county. All right, uh, thank you, Jim, and uh, thank you, Mr. Chair and uh, members of the council. Uh, as Jim mentioned, my name is Leo Floor, and I have the privilege of directing King County's Department of Community and Human Services, and included within our portfolio is the Health Through Housing Program. If you'll bear with me for one second, I'm gonna pull up a, a quick presentation. So uh, if someone could confirm with a thumbs up that you're seeing uh, what are not organ colors, but are uh, sonic colors. So uh, again, uh, here at King County, we do have a program called Health Through Housing. I'd like to emphasize a couple of things. I, I promise not to, to draw this out, but it is an opportunity to get a sense of the program overall. On this first slide, the thing I would like to emphasize is what we are talking about is housing. Uh, and a lot of the, the conversation and discourse around uh, the purchase of hotels has been on the difference between shelter and, and housing. What we are talking about here today is the provision of housing. The other thing I'd like to emphasize is, uh, and I don't think this has come up recently, uh, I can say unequivocally that what we are talking about tonight is not 
a safe injection site or any other name that people use for that. Uh, I also oversee the county's behavioral health response and uh, the behavioral health system for Medicaid eligible folks. And so I can state unequivocally uh, that this is not and will not become a safe injection site. Our starting point uh, tonight is that across King County, if we just take a look at chronically homeless folks, and we'll talk in a minute about what constitutes a chronically homeless person, there are at least 6,000 people who sleep outside every night. That number is growing. Uh, in the month of January, 21 people died who were sleeping outside in King County. And at least five of those were directly due to exposure to the elements. So we often talk about the crisis of homelessness in our community. And uh, like a crisis does, this is actually putting people's real lives at risk in a material way where people are actually passing away within our county right now. Uh, and it happens when it's cold. You may recall that it happened when it got really hot last summer. And we know that people who live outside live a shorter amount of time than people who live inside. The other key point and, and why we emphasize housing is that uh, housing works. And so a lot of the conversation that uh, we have when we talk about citing permanent supportive housing is people being curious to learn about how housing works. And we can get into that uh, tonight a little bit, particularly with questions. But I think it's also important to compare housing to the other types of interventions that we use in our community for people who live outside. So one of the things that we know is that uh, if we compare public cost, and I think public cost is an important measure, although it is not the only measure, but if we take a look at public cost and you take a look at the numbers we have downstairs, the cost to the public to incarcerate a person, or excuse me, to send a person to Harborview for three days equals the cost to incarcerate them in the King County Jail for three months equals the cost to house them for a full year. And when we take a look at cost versus effective, we know that for uh, people who live outside, ending their homelessness, bringing them inside, uh, welcoming, them, welcoming them into our community, the most effective intervention is housing and the least effective intervention is emergency rooms and jails. And so we literally have a situation in which we know what works on this vexing problem within our community. The thing that works best is the cheapest and the thing that works least best that we rely upon for thousands of people is actually the most exp expensive. And so the, the system that we have created is one that is not working. And we see that playing out uh, with thousands of people sleeping outside every night. So what is Health Through Housing? Uh, it is a county initiative. It's based on a sales tax that the King County Council imposed uh, in late 2020. And the uh, overall initiative is designed to bring 1,600 chronically homeless or at risk of, chronic, of becoming chronically homeless people inside and to do so while reducing what is really a shocking racial ethnic disproportionality amongst people who experience homelessness in our community. So just to get into that particular component for a moment, uh, about 6% of the overall King County population identifies as Black or African American. They constitute about 25% of the chronically homeless population. That is something that repeats year over year over year. It repeats across the entire human services continuum. Uh, and I will argue that it is actually not a mistake of the way that our system operates. We have for hundreds of years in this country 
systemically disadvantaged a particular ethnicity in, in terms of uh, Black African-American folks, and that shows up even today. The other population that is experiencing chronic homelessness disproportionality or disproportionately is the native population. So uh, on land that was originally native, uh, they make up less than 2% uh, of the overall population, uh, but they are even more starkly overrepresented, uh, depending on the measure, constituting up to 15% of the people who experience chronic homelessness. So uh, when we talk about ending chronic homelessness, bringing people inside, I think that is inseparable from ending the racial ethnic disproportionality that is causing nearly half of the people who experience chronically homeless uh, to be from population or chronic homelessness to be from populations who constitute less than 10% of the overall chronic homeless or the overall population in our county. Uh, a couple other ways to talk about health through housing because I think this is useful. So one is cost. So if uh, King County were to go out and we do this and build additional affordable housing right now from scratch, the cost per unit exceeds $400,000. And in fact, I would argue over the course of this year in particular, that cost is escalating quite a bit as lots of materials and wait times are increasing the cost of doing business. And with the Health Through Housing portfolio, what we're able to do is take advantage of a temporary condition, buying hotels that are underutilized in our community right now. And we're averaging just uh, under $270,000 per unit uh, with this strategy. So. I mentioned earlier that permanent supportive housing is the cheapest and most effective way to bring people inside and health through housing is actually a faster and cheaper version of that so that we can get more and more people inside with the resources that we have. The other thing that we're doing is bringing people inside. So 1,600 people is the goal to be able to bring inside with acquisitions uh, and for that to be complete by the end of this year. And then the last thing that health through housing is, a lot of times we're able to build housing but it's actually the services that in all of the community conversations I have, people are really focused. How are we gonna make sure that the people who live within buildings that we operate and build are gonna be successful? And it has everything to do with the services that we're able to provide. So with Health Through Housing, this is King County's highest level of per unit service expenditure of any housing program we operate. Uh, and we're doing that because we want these buildings to be successful. Uh, all of the buildings will have on-site access to behavioral and physical health care, uh, case management there, housing assistance, nutrition, uh, and employment supports. I mentioned that health through housing is regional. So one thing that I'd like to point out here, and, and I've got a slightly different looking little logo uh, to, to denote the Kirkland location, but the Kirkland location will be the 10th health through housing site. We have them now in six, it would become the sixth city uh, Seattle has the most facilities, uh, but this is the first permanent supportive housing along with the other health through housing projects in the cities of Redmond, uh, Renton, Auburn, Federal Way, and then Kirkland. So uh, it is true that this proven approach, this evidence-based approach uh, is gonna be established for the first time in multiple parts of our county through this initiative. These are just some pictures to get a sense of the types of facilities that we are acquiring through the program. Uh, this is a really quick point to mention that buying hotels is not a replacement for purpose-built permanent supportive housing, but it is an important way to bring a lot of units on faster than we're traditionally able to do. Uh, and then again, to emphasize that 
Uh, this allows us to provide for robust ongoing operations. Who can live in a health through housing building? So a person must be either uh, chronically homeless or at risk of chronic homelessness. And these definitions are really important. The definition for chronic homelessness is a federal one. And it talks about people who have lived outside for a long time, at least 12 months, for many times in the last 12 months. So if you, I think it's three times within uh, the last year, and then they must have a disabling condition. So these are people with disabilities. Uh, at risk of chronic homelessness, uh, sort of widens the time eligibility a little bit, and then accounts for some of the racial ethnic disproportionality that are in play. The other uh, primary criteria is income. So this is for folks who earn 30% or below of the area median income. And uh, just to note it, it is a condition of being housed in permanent supportive housing that a household pays 30% of their income to be able to, to be housed and stay housed. So 30% uh, zero is zero, uh, but it's actually extremely rare that somebody has zero income. Um, and one of the things that we're doing in this program is connecting people to uh, different types of uh, benefits that they might be eligible for. Another issue just to highlight it, the, uh, this question comes up quite a bit is, uh, why would you build this here? We don't have uh, homelessness in our community. I'm not attributing that to Kirkland. That's an argument that I hear frequently. And if you do build this here, then people from somebody, someplace else are gonna come here. Uh, the state law that creates the healthier housing program requires that at least 15% of the units within the building are available for what we're calling local referral or referral by the host city. Uh, I'm pleased to report, although we'll have to finalize it with uh, the city itself, uh, that we expect that percentage to be significantly higher, both upon initial lease up of the building and then the process to fill units once they become vacant. Uh, we'll also be uh, funding and working uh, to support local outreach to make sure that we're finding folks within communities so that they can benefit from the resource that we are creating for the first time in a city like Kirkland. Uh, and a point here that I think is part of the, the, the value of this program. Right now, a person who becomes homeless and has a disability and would require permanent supportive housing has to leave Kirkland. And in fact, they don't only have to leave Kirkland, they have to leave the entire east side of our county that has more people in it than 15 of the United States. And so the ability for people to be housed within the community where they become homeless, we know is essential to their being able to succeed and to, to stay housed. Uh, and for the folks for whom it's appropriate to actually move beyond permanent supportive housing into other forms of permanent housing. And so this idea that we are creating the ability for people within a community to stay in that community is really a strong part of our program. Uh, as I mentioned, this is the 10th facility uh, that we are working on. And what I'd like to do here is identify some of the feedback we've already heard uh, from the city of Kirkland and in other health through housing cities that we've been uh, moving forward in. So uh, the first thing that I just, I think is important to throw out there is I think the vast majority of people want to do something productive about people living outside in our community. And I've been uh, really heartened by the, the level of discourse that we're able to engage in with people who are uh, willing to have uh, a sort of curious conversation about what could work for this problem that is getting worse right now in our community. And housing is that solution. 
Uh, but we hear a lot about, well, that's fine, but how you do it is everything that matters. How you actually implement a program is what makes it successful or not successful. So a couple of things to highlight. Uh, we do hear quite a bit about the importance of 24-7 staffing. This facility will be staffed 24-7. We hear quite a bit about the importance of on-site uh, behavioral health services. And behavioral health is a term we use to really talk about both mental health and substance use disorder services. They used to be separate regimes, but they're sort of combined together now. Uh, and what we know is that the minute somebody seeks treatment and is ready for treatment, that's the moment you have to get them treatment for it to be successful. That is the most successful mode to be able to modify uh, support and help people who uh, are experiencing a behavioral health condition. And so our goal is to have that on site so that it's readily available. We call it access on demand. Security. Security is a thing that we hear about quite a bit in safety. We want everybody associated with this to be safe. We want the residents within the buildings to be safe. They currently are not when they sleep outside. We want the school and the, the children who attend that school to be safe. We want the neighboring businesses to be safe. And the question I think that we want to focus on is how to do that effectively. Another thing that we hear about quite a bit is, uh, you know, what could you do physically to the, to the site to make sure that it sort of contributes to that safety? Uh, so uh, we've uh, agreed in other sites to institute or install privacy fencing. Uh, I think depending on who you talk to, that's either for the people uh, who live within the facility for their privacy, uh, or for the people who are next door to a facility, but uh, I got a fence in my backyard. I believe that uh, good fences make good neighbors uh, so that people get their own space. Uh, and then the last thing that we hear quite a bit about is communication. So uh, I will stand here right now and say, no program is going to be perfect. This program will not be flawless, but what we are committed to is that where there are issues, we'll catch them quick, and we will have the communication system in place to be able to identify, communicate, and then solve issues in ways that promote everybody's safety. The process in Kirkland, uh, just to get a sense of timing. So I think a bottom line that I wanna emphasize here is that uh, we do not expect the first residents to move into this health through housing building until the first quarter of 2023. So we've got significant process ahead of us with the city, with the local community, with a potential and future operator to really finalize and design the program, make it tailored to the particular site, hear from the community, integrate that feedback, and then design a program that ultimately can and will be successful at this location in the city of Kirkland. So uh, that's uh, the real quick overview I think I'll end here. I, I know that there are questions. I have uh, listed some resources. Um, if you don't have the ability to memorize the uh, <laughs> exacting URLs there, uh, you could Google or, or Bing. I understand some people still Bing. Uh, either the Corporation for Supportive Housing, which is a national authority, or there's a local authority called the, uh, the Third Door Coalition. And both of them, I think, have good material uh, that explains the value of uh, permanent supportive housing and takes an angle of trying to answer a lot of the frequently asked questions about both of those. 
So uh, that's what I've got by way of quick presentation and uh, happy along with Jim to answer any questions that might come up. Jim, do you wanna take over now before we ask questions? No, I think um, let's turn it over to folks. Okay. And, um, and, and Leo, thank you. That was an outstanding presentation. And I, uh, we, we would, I think everyone would like to have access to all those slides that you presented. Is that something that you could share with us, please? Okay, that would be very helpful. Um, so let's uh, begin with uh, if any of our council members have specific questions before we have the uh, items from the audience, I'd like to give you opportunity to ask a few questions. Anybody have anything in particular or would you rather wait until we hear from them? Okay, I see Bill's hand up. Yeah, Leo, thank you for the presentation. Um, very informative. Um, I saw this, I think you gave the same presentation to the Eastside Preparatory School several weeks ago um, in their town hall meeting. Um, so the question that I think keeps coming up in the community is, why is this location a good location with, you're within a mile of five different schools, including children that, that are as young as two years old. Um, and, and two of those schools are right adjacent to the site. Why does that make that a, a good site? Why isn't that, um, eliminated because of that. Thank you. Um, I think a, a first way to start is it is completely normal across every community that I'm aware of to house to have housing next to schools. Um, and so I, I think it is worth at least identifying what I perceive to be the real tension in that question, which is not about whether there should be housing next to schools, but whether people who are formerly homeless should be housed next to a school. And I think there's a lot in there. Um, as I mentioned, uh, the homeless population is large enough in our community that is really diverse. Uh, and so I think uh, I just, you know, it's a good opportunity to, to see what assumptions we have about who is experiencing homelessness and, and why we would feel uncomfortable with them living next to schools. Uh, the other thing that I think is important is housing is rarely the intervention where a person sort of comes immediately out of crisis directly into housing. Uh, that's just not the way that our system typically works. And so by the time a person is getting screened and then selected and placed in permanent supportive housing, uh, they've often benefited from quite a bit of st stabilization. Uh, we are inputting them into our behavioral health database. We're checking what types of services are available to them. Uh, and the folks that are in housing are folks that we know. Uh, the other thing that I think uh, is really important as we take a look at locations is again, we want everyone to be safe. Uh, the way that you make any program successful is by how you implement it, how you measure its success and how you monitor it. Uh, and we are uh, really confident that we can have types of interventions like housing or even shelter near things like schools. And the reason that we're confident is because it's already happening in our county. One example uh, to, to just point out is we have a daycare at the basement of the building that I work at, the Chinook building in downtown Seattle. It has a sobering center, a jail, two shelters, and a homeless day center, all within uh, one block radius of that building. And there's never been an issue. Uh, this is a place where King County employees uh, bring their children. And so it's all about how you design a program that can be successful, 
how do you understand what uh, assumptions we might be making about the people that would be seeking housing? And then how do we implement a program that we know can account for a particular site, not be sort of blind to the possibilities. Our job is to see where there's risk, assess that risk and mitigate it, but also not, not house people out of a sort of assumption that something might happen when we can see across the county that housing is routinely next to schools and we don't see realized uh, the type of issues that a lot of people are concerned about. Thank you. Thank you very much. I see Larry has his hand up, Larry. Uh, yeah, th thanks for the presentation. And this may be for both of you, uh, Leo and, and Jim and Lopez. You went through the kind of the between March and first quarter of 2023 slide, said, hey, there's going to be a lot of public involvement and things like that. But we never really heard, at least I didn't hear, kind of what that would involve and how that would uh, manifest itself. We have 117 people listening in. Uh, as attendees right now. And I think that's probably part of the issue of how do they get involved? How do they know what's going on? Uh, and what's that gonna look like out here? So I just tried to get, get that on the table earlier. Thanks. Well, I, I can start with that, um, Larry. Um, we have uh, a plan to do comprehensive to build on the engagement that we've been doing, which I'll go over briefly so you can see how it kind of rolls into our engagement plan should the county move forward with the purchase of the property. Because as the mayor wrote in her February 15th letter, um, the, the role of the city and the, the city's approval and, and endorsement of the project is very much built around a successful community engagement process around how the site will be operated, the safety protocols, the actual operator itself, and all of the very specific and critical elements to ensure the safety of the program. And we started back in January where we sent the council Senate a, a letter out urging to get this conversation started as soon as we can. And I, I ask everyone to please go to the um, city of Kirkland website. We've spent a lot of time on an FAQ there, which literally has about everything we know. It's the timeline, it's where it fits in the city's process, the continuum of care, what we knew, when we knew it through this entire process. And I'll go through a little detail if it's okay, Mr. Chair, because it builds on where we hope the engagement process to go. Yes. Um, uh, so thank you. So in, in February, we uh, posted uh, Kurt Triplett, our city manager's statement to our website. So I urge everybody to go there and read the statement because it does outline uh, the four corners of the city's involvement and in, in what our role is. And we've had a, a really a lot of engagement around this. We had over 3,700 unique page views so we posted it, um, I'm sorry, the, the, um, the website. So we posted that to Facebook and had over 11,000 people um, view that with over 3,000, almost 4,000 engagement. So we have this growing body of folks who are aware of what's happening. And we posted it to our listserv, which I urge everyone here to jump onto. It's over 5,700 people and we've posted our, our information on our listserv twice now. 
um, reaching a, a good number of people. And we have established on our website and uh, health through housing listserv. We had over 2,300 unique views. Please join that listserv to write on the kirklandwa.gov website. You will receive notification on significant events that happen with this program. And it's a, a robust number and it's growing. So please join that listserv. Uh, Mayor Sweet's letter is also on our site. Uh, we posted that on uh, February 15th. And in that letter, you'll see what I'm talking about, the criteria by which the mayor said the city is going to get involved very specifically with the community to communicate about the community's expectation as to how this facility is going to run, the elements around it. Leo mentioned a fence, uh, the kind of uh, security plan with the police department. All of those very important elements are in front of us. The engagement is starting and moving forward on those um, important items. And you'll see the city machinery roll in with more community meetings like this and other uh, opportunities to have direct engagement. Um, yeah, so keep your eye out for those very important things. I will say we've had over 250, I think, specific inquiries on our, our Kirkland site that goes directly to the council. Uh, one of the most robust responses I've seen since I've been at the city, we've responded to everyone. The Our Kirkland platform is another place where Houghton residents and Houghton uh, community council uh, leaders can interact with the city. We have sent every one of those uh, letters to the council. So they're getting a rich um, database of, of our community interest already. So Larry, we take all of that work and we build an engagement plan moving forward, building on all the insight that we've been giving to the county uh, for our community as we kind of create the protocols around how the site would be operated. And I just wanna thank Leo for being so responsive to us and your team in receiving that information. I know the county made, I think over 100 direct phone calls. I think you can correct me wrong if I'm wrong, Leo. We sent the county specific stakeholder addresses in the immediate vicinity of the schools. And um, they sent, I think, multiple direct emails to those businesses and called them. So that's the work we hope to build on moving forward. And all of these issues of how the site would be operated and stood up are before us. And we hope to get the community's involvement on that. Okay. I would just... Uh, uh, quickly amplify that last piece. Um, the vast majority of community engagement on how to make this successful is in front of us. Uh, in fact, I do think it will take the better part of the remainder of this year. Uh, specific issues to come up are, uh, by what criteria will we select an operator? Who will become the operator? What, uh, there's a, a phrase that you'll hear uh, called a good neighbor agreement, uh, but basically by what means would we have an operator, the city, the county, and then any interested member of the community engage together to identify how to communicate, identify uh, you know, what we might do in the event of particular uh, issues that people might be concerned about. Uh, and all of that is ahead of us uh, as we go forward. Uh, the other thing to share as we look 
uh, backwards right now is this is the earliest in a purchase process that we have engaged with the public. Um, uh, if any of the health through housing purchases, that's based in part on feedback that we've received. Uh, we have an interest in particular in not engaging so early that we put at risk our ability to be responsible stewards of public funding uh, in a real estate transaction. Uh, but we proceeded as quickly as we are more quickly than we have in other transactions to, to engage with the public in this one uh, based on feedback and because we continue to hear that that's important to people. Good. Okay, I think Ruth had her hand up next. Ruth, would you speak, please? Sure. Um, couple, couple questions. One, Leo, you mentioned, well, first of all, I want to say I applaud whoever it was that thought of this idea of buying buildings that are already built because it is expensive to build them. And I think it's a great idea. Um, I too have my own organization where I help the homeless. I've been doing, we've been doing it for 20 years when someone goes into an apartment, they're not given anything. So we supply everything that goes into that apartment to help them be stable. So I totally understand the homeless problem from that point of view. This is a whole different point of view, people with disabilities. You mentioned people with disabilities, Leo, and you also mentioned behavioral health conditions. What exactly are some examples of those? Absolutely. Uh, so uh, behavioral health is a sort of broad and inclusive term uh, that, again, it sort of unifies what used to be separate worlds of what they used to call mental health and substance use disorder and really sort of recognizes that they're both sort of medical conditions that should be conceived of in the same way. Uh, examples. Um, one might be a person who has substance use disorder, who's, who's addicted um, to alcohol, um, to drugs. Uh, it might be a person who uh, suffers depression, um, which is a thing that we see more and more in our community right now. Uh, it could be a person who has uh, any number of sort of diagnosable uh, mental health or behavioral health uh, sort of conditions. I, I won't attempt to account for it all, but that's essentially the tenor of what we're talking about when we talk about a behavioral health disability. Uh, and they can also have uh, and be eligible a physical disability. So a person who's wheelchair bound a person who uh, living outside has had to have a foot amputated um, because of frostbite, which is something that we will see. Um, so that, that sort of accounts for the full range of disabling conditions for the purpose of that definition. Okay, thank you. So if, if someone is addicted to heroin, will they be accepted into this building? Uh, yes, if it is possible that a person who has a heroin addiction would be accepted into this housing in order to receive housing and be, get into the strongest position to actually recover from that addiction. Uh, I think it's also worth noting that in our community, the vast majority of people who are addicted to heroin are housed. And what we are talking about is the subset of people who might have an addiction uh, who live outside. And I think, I, I just wanna state this unequivocally at King County, we want those people to recover and we want those people to no longer be uh, addicted to substances. And the sole question is what is the actual most effective evidence-based way to do that? And housing is the tool that we have that we know is an essential ingredient for the vast majority of people to be able to break an addiction and live a healthy life. 
And totally makes sense, but um, your FAQs state that the legal drugs would be the only ones that would be allowed in these places. So if someone's addicted to something illegal, it seems kind of a dichotomy there of, of different opinions. Um, uh, going back to Bill Goggins' question, Bill, there's actually 12 schools, daycares and preschools within one mile of um, this place. And that's what my biggest question is. Um, I appreciate you talking about your daycare. My husband um, works for um, a company. They were in a building that's been in Seattle for more than 60 years. Um, they not only moved their office out of the building, but they also um, got the family to sell, well, the family agreed to sell the building. They were quite sad because they remember sitting on grandpa's knee there, but because of the homeless situation and the fear. And it's the fear that they saw that they experienced when especially the women that would leave um, and go to the bus stop in, at, in the dark. And um, several had issues of being attacked. One uh, by a lady, she came up behind them and started hitting someone. If she'd had a knife, it could have been much worse. So they're actually seeing this. And that's why I think people are um, uh, in fear of moving what's going on in Seattle out to the east side. When I think personally, I think the root cause is need to be addressed in Seattle, which is their Seattle is a welcoming city to the homeless. This is where people want to go. Um, in the nonprofits that I've worked with before, we fed the homeless underneath the bridges, the underneath I-5 there in that feeding center. And people were saying, two, two different people on two different days say, I just got off the bus today from a different state because we heard how good it was here in Seattle. So I just have a fear that what's going on in Seattle is we don't have tents here. So we have, there's tents there, but there's not tents here because our rules and regulations are different. That's why I was concerned with the city and um, wanting to um, bring that here. I think having it in a hotel is a great idea, but I'm really concerned with your comment about that it's okay next to schools. I just, um, the windows from the La Quinta Inn are 100 feet from the windows of the nearest school and 50 feet from the play area. And I just can't believe that that is okay. Um, Mayor Sweet stated in a meeting with parents that, um, that this is a great way to create a model to determine the danger of locating permanent supportive housing near schools. That might've been a poor choice of words, but it's scary to think that she's using our children as a model for this type of housing and placing children at risk at safety for an unproven model that may very well have unintended consequences for the most vulnerable in our city, and that's our children. And I think that's the main point that I was getting from a lot of the emails that we saw from Houghton is that we're placing the homeless over the safety of our children. And I feel that those priorities aren't, um, aren't the right ones, but thank you for your, um, Again, I think the hotel idea is a great, I think in that area that you've chosen is not such a good idea. Thank you. Okay, Kristen, see your hand up. Yes, hi, thank you for that informative presentation. Um, 
two questions from me. The first is in this facility, are you planning to have men, women, and children? Will it be mixed? Uh, so the facility as we plan it will be uh, focused on people who are 18 and older adults. Um, we will not, uh, it could be for uh, multiple genders, uh, either gender, really that becomes a, a function of the operator that we'd select. Uh, hotel rooms, especially hotel rooms this size, don't tend to be suitable as permanent housing for families with children. Okay, so is the reason it, the size is why there wouldn't be children allowed in that facility? Just simply the size? Uh, I, I do want to be uh, clear that as we take a look at the facility, you know, there is, is family-focused housing uh, in the county, uh, but this particular program really is focused on reducing chronic homelessness. Um, what uh, uh, the previous council member was mentioning about uh, people don't like to go outside because of how many people are experiencing homelessness outside is the exact same problem that we're hoping to solve. Let's bring more people inside and have them housed. So, uh, and it is true that when you take a look at who is the most uh, experiencing chronic homelessness in our community, it is adults. Um, and so that's who we're really focusing on with this particular program. Okay. So again, uh, it's due to the size that no children would be admitted into that, that particular facility, right? Am I, am I hearing that correctly? Uh, I think uh, first and foremost, it is our program's focus to reduce chronic homelessness, which is primarily experienced by adults. So that is a programmatic focus. It is also true that uh, permanent housing is not a place where we want a family of four, for example, permanently housed in a hotel room. Okay. Uh, and then second question would be, uh, in this particular facility in La Quinta, are there kitchens? Will the folks living there have access to cooking facilities? And if not, what is the plan to address that gap in terms of access to uh, food and, and nutrition and the ability to cook it? Absolutely. So uh, across the entire health through housing portfolio, one of the key aspects of it is that we will ensure that the operator is providing for the nutrition as a part of the health of the residents. The La Quinta Inn does not currently have full kitchenettes within each of the rooms. Some of the hotels we've purchased do, some of them do not. Uh, what we are taking a look at as part of uh, the building is whether immediately uh, to go ahead and install kitchenettes within those rooms uh, or whether to do that as a part of a later uh, improvement to the building. We've not made that decision yet, uh, but the eventual goal for Health Through Housing is for all of the hotel rooms that don't currently have some form of a kitchenette to get that in place so that people can uh, uh, cook their own food and where that's not true to ensure either through central kitchen uh, that many hotels do have or by delivery of food through organizations like Fair Start, for example, that we're providing for the nutrition of the folks who live there. Thank you. Betsy, would you care to ask your question? Yeah, just a little bit. Thank you. Thank you for the great presentation. Um, I, I just, um, I, I spent some time yesterday uh, with a family member who has experienced homelessness and addiction, both in Seattle and in Bellevue. Um, he's familiar with these services um, and, and these, these places. And so he gave me an awful lot of pointers, an awful lot of questions to ask um, because he's very aware of 
how beautiful recovery is and how important housing is to people and to recovering. He's also completely aware of the dangers, the pitfalls. You know, he has seen, you know, he has watched the people when they don't have food available every day. You know, he says we would walk right out of the shelter or the homeless place and we'd everybody would go to the Whole Foods and start shoplifting. So I think that the um, food food service is very important, having food available to people on site. Maybe it becomes a donation site. And, and I know that there's all these details we're gonna work out later. I'm not exactly sure how that's gonna happen, but this, this gentleman also said it was very important to have these services on, on site all the time for like the behavioral issues, the counseling issues, the addiction issues. Um, so it hasn't been clear. I feel like some of these presentations are very vague on what all of this means. 24 seven staffing. Is that like one person for 120 people, you know, and then if somebody's experiencing an issue, they have to, you have to call somebody in the middle of the night, or is there somebody on site? Is there a counselor on site? Is there drug and, you know, are there drug counselors on site 24 seven. What do folks do during the day? You said some people aren't working. What do they do during the day? I mean, I know you keep talking about how secure the site will be, but people leave during the day. And so what's gonna be, you know, so I think that we have a great opportunity here to do something wonderful. But if we don't do it right this time, you're not going to see another facility like this on the east side because it's so I just the devil's in the details and I just want to make sure that we we address all of this stuff going forward. So that's that's all I want to say. Just uh, quickly, if I could, Mr. Chair, yes, um, please. I couldn't agree with you more. Um, this is all about doing this and implementing this in a way that could be successful. And the on site services is key. Um, and to get concrete about this, uh, folks that uh, I work with right now are operating 24-7 facilities uh, in uh, different parts of King County where we, we understand this at a really granular level, uh, granular level. So one of the things that DCHS has been doing since the beginning of the pandemic is operating the entire isolation and quarantine facility for our, uh, or system for our county. Uh, that is a system that's primarily used by unhoused people, uh, either coming from shelters or encampments or permanent supportive housing in some cases. And uh, we have 24-7 on-site behavioral health specialists, as well as operations staff. Um, we have uh, nutrition on-site, and uh, we have access to behavioral health. So earlier to Councilmember Wright's question, uh, we bring folks in, and if they have an opiate addiction, they'll be able to be induced onto buprenorphine, which is a medicine that can help you stop using opiates, uh, or they'll have access to methadone, another medicine uh, that can help you stop using opiates. And we, uh, to be successful, have a very clear and specific vision that we have to have the behavioral health services immediately access accessible on-site. Again, I mentioned it's called access on demand. Uh, nutrition available at all times uh, so that people are able uh, to uh, meet those needs. And then to the question about what do people do? Um, 
Some people who live, are homeless work during the day. The chronically homeless population is older than the general population. Uh, some folks will be 60, 70, or 80 years old. Um, at some point, uh, we as a society sort of stop expecting people to work as a general matter, although it's very much an individual choice. Um, and uh, for some folks, uh, they'll do what we would expect of a retired person to do. Uh, ideally, they'll uh, have community, they'll leave the building, go participate in the community. Um, and then uh, for some folks, uh, the immediate experience in the building will be one that's focused on the recovery, and then they'll be able to sort of broaden their horizons, engage in community. And when we talk about the operators, which can be a little bit of a depersonalizing construct, we're really talking about people who do this for a living, uh, who uh, have the experience and help thousands of people across our region right now successfully get housed and just need more opportunities to do that work. And Betty, Rick, if I, uh, Mr. Chair, if yes, I can yeah, of course, we're we're pretty informal here yeah. in case oh, you haven't figured it out. <laughs> yeah. Betty, uh, thank you. And those are exactly the kinds of issues that the city will work directly with you and this community about. We feel staffing ratios, staffing plans, uh, wraparound services, the type and the the intensity. All of those things are on the table for the city and the county and the community to work together to flesh out best practices, what's best for this site. Um, so more to follow on that, but that's exactly the kind of outreach and even to the level of focus group, uh, small group meetings that we're willing to do as a city and work closely with the county to um, flesh out together. That's great. Yeah, I've already suggested that, uh, that the site have a library and I think that the, you know, there's an awful lot of readers in Kirkland and there's an awful lot of books that we could, we could have a beautiful library and a garden, um, you know, and I think it would be great for people that lived there to have a garden. They can grow their own food, maybe a rooftop garden, you know, stuff like that. So I think really, I mean, there's an opportunity to have, have something really beautiful here, but we have to really just make sure we're doing it right. So. Okay. Everybody's had a chance to talk except John. You've been uncharacteristically quiet. Do you want? Do you have a question before we open up to public comments? John, unmute yourself. Thank you, Rick. Uh, yeah, I've got a uh, a few questions here. Uh, Leo, you talked about um, housing shelter and six thousand people per night and growing. Um, and the death due to exposure. And I'm, I'm just going through the order in your presentation, not in any particular order from my standpoint. Um, I'm interested in the data in terms of the number of people that have died during exposure uh, from an autopsy standpoint, how much of it is pure exposure versus other items involved, sickness, heart attack, drug overdose, those sorts of things. What can you tell me about that? Yeah. Um, first, uh, there. You know, you don't have to take my word for it. Uh, the data are actually readily available. Um, they get reported on with some frequency as well. But uh, the King County uh, Medical Examiner's Office is a source of of just here's the facts. But here's what we know: um, some people are dying just due to exposure. So during the historic heat that we had last year, uh, there were uh, at least two cases I'm aware of people who just dehydrated to death. They just mm -hmm sat outside and their body temperature raised above the level that was capable of sustaining life and they died. Uh, we believe right now that just in the month of January, 
uh, five humans died because their body got too cold or because uh, in two cases, I understand it, they associated uh, death by asphyxiation because they were in cars that were running in an attempt to stay warm over the cold weather. Um, not everybody dies due to direct exposure. Uh, we are aware that uh, any number of actually the, the, sort, the causes of death that you talked about are happening. Um, I cannot tell you what percentages those are. Uh, some of them will include uh, deaths that are due to drug use. Some of them will include deaths that are due to health conditions. Um, some people will hear that and point out that uh, depending on your construct, uh, all of those are health conditions or uh, some people have a different approach to that. Uh, but what we do know as a general matter is that the homeless population lives less long, lives shorter, dies quicker than the housed population. Um, and that just makes sense uh, that living outside is so hard, so traumatic uh, that, uh, and, and one question that comes up quite a bit that I think is illustrative of this larger point, uh, you know, there's a debate about, you know, do people who use drugs become homeless and they become homeless because of their drug use? Or do people use drugs because that's how you can survive when you live outside? Um, I'm not a person who's gonna attempt to characterize every person out there in a sort of broad stroke way because I think that would be inaccurate. Uh, but what I can say is the vast majority of people who use drugs do so in the homes that they live in. Um, and if drug use itself were the thing that causes people to be homeless, even illegal drug use, uh, we would have a lot more homeless people in our community. So there's something else at least that's going on here. And I cannot you know, answer here the particular percentages of heart attack versus diabetes versus um, uh, any other type of, of health condition. My next question is about the cost of public. You purported that uh, three days in a hospital, three days in jail and a year in housing is the equilibrium. Um, I'm back to data again. What sort of data is there on the cost of the community in terms of issues that spill out from uh, these facilities uh, into the community? What sort of cost does the community bear? That could be in damaged property, that could be in theft, that could be in cost to the emergency services that are not really part of the hospital costs that you're talking about. Um, what sort of costs can you tell us in the data about that? Yeah, um, so one, I cited a very specific statistic. Um, you could go to Plymouth Housing's website. They're actually relying on uh, research that was conducted within King County as part of our mental illness and drug dependency sales tax initiative uh, about five years ago. The University of Washington recently published a study that took a look at a shelter in a hotel, and I have a reason to suspect that housing in a hotel is even more stabilizing, that made the exact point that people who live inside use fewer services and are quote unquote less expensive to the public than people who live outside. Um, and I'd contend that you are asking for data, and so, so that's an example of a source um, there's a, I cited a local organization called the Third Door Coalition that sort of compiled a lot of the research around this. Um, but it also just makes sense that people who live outside and have the police or the fire or the ambulance called on them more because living outside is hard, cost less in a financial sense to the public than people who live inside. And then I think the final part of this is, uh, I work at King County. Uh, 
more than 75% of the general fund of the county or just around there uh, goes to operate our legal system. Uh, prosecutors, jails, uh, jail guards, law enforcement, and uh, we have a very high rate of use of the legal system to uh, assist or to at least encounter people who are experiencing homelessness in our community. You'll often hear the jail referred to as the largest behavioral health facility uh, in the county for people who can't afford their own behavioral health. Uh, and that is a tremendously expensive system. And it's the reason why in King County, uh, we actually have to pass property tax levies to pay for things like human services because so much of the general fund is dedicated to the legal system. Uh, so uh, there's more data on those websites that I listed, both Third Door Coalition and uh, the Corporation for Supportive Housing locally and nationally, the UW study that I'll make sure to send along with the slides that I'll provide after this meeting uh, is another sort of recent and local and very specific to hotels in King County example of how this reduces service use and therefore cost. Uh, thank you. Um, I have a question about the use of existing buildings. I, from a pure financial standpoint, I also think that strategy is much more financial sound than building ground up. Um, however, there's another side to that is when we take during this time where hotels are depressed due to COVID and we can snap them up at a cheap cost, I have to ask the question, tourism is such a large portion of our economy, what is the cost to the marketplace to replace these facilities when the city's uh, economic development committee wants to promote tourism and get people to come to enjoy Kirkland. What's the trade-off? Absolutely. So uh, one at the high point of this program, it'll be about 1,100 uh, actual hotel units that we'll acquire. The remainder is gonna go to apartment buildings um, that we'll purchase or that the city of Seattle is constructing right now. Uh, that is a small percentage. I don't know the total number of hotel rooms in our county. Uh, another thing is at play here, though, and you mentioned the market, and I think this is really important. What we see in our community, whether it's housing or shelter, is that the market functions the way that it functions. It makes housing really expensive where we live. Um, it is normal for somebody to, you know, we don't even flinch at a million dollars for the combination of drywall and wood that constitutes a house these days. Um, but uh, there's a very specific portion of the population for whom the economics of the market actually exclude them systemically. So when you take a look at people who make what we identified as 30% of the area median income and below, so people are making $30,000, $40,000 a year or less, and then you take a look at what it costs to construct housing or hotels in our community, you literally cannot afford to pay for rent in our community if you make social security for a living only, or other types of, of uh, uh, sectors that, that pay uh, relatively little money. So uh, to your question about the overall impact, we are paying in private real estate transactions to willing sellers uh, to purchase hotels in this instance. Uh, I believe that they will find the market, market conditions favorable to build additional hotels if they choose to. That doesn't seem to be uh, something that's been limited in our community to date, 
But what has absolutely been limited by the sort of nature of the market is the production of housing that's affordable to the poorest people in our community. And it's really sort of unsurprising, therefore, that we have thousands of people living outside. A, a sort of final data point to this, I've mentioned really the people who experience chronic homelessness in our community, that number is around 6,000. Uh, when we combine all of the databases and integrate the data at King County, we believe more than 40,000 people experienced homelessness in King County for at least one day last year. 40,000 people. And the vast majority of them were rehoused relatively quickly um, or, or didn't stay in the system for a long time. But the longer we tolerate numbers that large, the percentage of people who become chronically homeless will continue to grow and will become more and more difficult to assist and serve them. We, we have a moment to intervene now to actually make this cost less, both morally and economically. And that's really the opportunity that we're pointed at. Uh, we do believe that the hotel sector, uh, you know, the economics of hotel and tourism will continue uh, to let uh, those folks be able to build hotels. And then the last thing, I, and I know this is a little bit of a long answer, uh, but we get this question with some frequency is, uh, so a thing I hear repeatedly from businesses is actually that the thing that is most threatening to tourism, and I'm a human services person, so, so I don't profess expertise here, but I'll hear people say that the thing that is most threatening to tourism is the fact that we have thousands of people living outside. Uh, and so, uh, again, I don't profess expertise here, but it seems to me that if that's true, the best thing you could do for tourism is to help bring everybody inside. <clears throat> Um, thank you. Jim, I've got a quick question for you. Can you explain the difference between what we know of so far of the type of housing proposed at the La Quinta Inn and what is happening at the Salt House across the street from the high school? How are those different? Just help me understand. Um, you're talking about the women and family shelter? Yes. Yeah. yeah, I think the, I'm not the expert on the, um, I'm not going to be the expert to give you the difference between the two. They're both uh, affordable housing solutions. I think it's probably best, other than the obvious one, even though I think men are accessible to that facility, that facility is designed for women and children. I think it's best for me to just follow up with you. I can follow up with Rick with a one pager outlining the differences between those two facilities, the acceptance criteria and things like that. I'm happy to do that, John. Okay, thank you. Um, I'm going to... I'm gonna give you the hook if you don't <laughs> wrap it up pretty quick, John. <laughs> I have written down too many questions. Let me jump ahead to uh, Leo, you had mentioned that uh, nutrition is available at all times. And, and uh, uh, Ruth and Betsy have talked about food and eating and how important that is. Explain to me what your proposal is. I know it depending upon the operator, but there has to be some big idea from the county standpoint. What does all times mean and how would that work? Yeah, so I'll, I'll use a practical example that we're employing right now at our isolation quarantine facilities. Uh, so we have scheduled meals and we deliver the scheduled meals to people's doors. Uh, we also maintain a couple of provisions room and that provisions room uh, has food in it, um, water in it, uh, Gatorade. And if someone uh, says, hey, I missed my meal or I'm hungry or that wasn't quite my style, 
we'll pick something up and bring it to them. Uh, so uh, I, I don't want to make the comparison to room service because it's not like there's this infinite menu and it comes on a silver platter, but we'll absolutely bring a plastic bag uh, with two bottles of water uh, and some snack food for somebody. Uh, I think as we get locations that actually have kitchen facilities within them, uh, people also can keep food in the room. Um, and uh, the big idea just to, uh, to share possibilities is depending on the location, we've got a number of vendors who, for example, are really excited about mobile markets that are uh, eligible to receive uh, food from uh, the SNAP or money from the SNAP program. Uh, so you drive the mobile market up and folks come outside, they get a chance to uh, develop some or practice some life skills around uh, purchasing healthy food. They get to use uh, other government benefit that's provided uh, and, and have healthy food brought to them. They can take it back to their room and then they could eat it. Um, it is more like housing, uh, that you and I experience in a relatively small apartment than I think some people might assume. Okay, and then last question, why on your presentation did you not list illegal drugs as one of the, the uh, items that will have people expelled from the facility? Yeah, uh, I think there's a couple of reasons. One is, uh, as I mentioned before, we are not conditioning tenancy on abstinence from use of illegal substances. And this is really important. Um, and I wanna spend a little bit of time on it because some people right now are having a reaction to that. See, I knew it. They're trying to make it a safe injection site. The only evidence-based way that we are aware of for the vast majority of people to end their use of illegal drugs is to, to engage them over time Many people will relapse. It's a term that most of us know because we are familiar with it in the community. And it is not successful to bring somebody into housing and then immediately eject them if they use illegal drugs one time. And in fact, um, if you were to call the police on somebody using illegal drugs out on the street right now, you would actually see a similar dynamic. Like that person is not going to be arrested and removed from the community. Now, this is, I think, really important. If a person continues to resist treatment over a very long time, or a person's illegal drug use or legal drug use, because alcohol is a legal drug, a, a legal drug in our community, um, becomes something that causes them to be a danger or a, a non-conforming member of the community that we establish in these buildings, they can be removed and they will be removed. The operators more than almost anybody want these facilities to be successful so when a person, whether or not they're under the influence of illegal drugs, becomes a danger to other people, uh, those folks can be asked to leave the, the facility. But uh, I think that the issue of will somebody who uses illegal drugs in the building one time categorically at that point be expelled from their housing? The answer is no. And that's also true of almost every unit of housing that I'm aware of that any of us reside in. Uh, thank you. That's all I have for now, Mr. Chair. Excellent. I'm going to ask a couple questions. I'll try to keep it as quick as I can so we get time for the public to uh, ask a lot of uh, comments, make their comments. First one, uh, following up on the data uh, theme that John was asking, I believe there uh, is a periodic survey of the homeless population done. Is it annually, Leo? Is that correct? Or is it semi-annual? Is that done on a national basis? 
there's a point in time count uh, that uh, up until two years ago was conducted annually in our community. Uh, I'm sure somebody on the audience has done it. You sort of go out at night, everyone across the county and attempt to count people. Right. Um, that is not an accurate way of quantifying. And so what we have seen in our community is a lot more data-based uh, attempts to quantify the number of people experiencing homelessness. The third thing that I'll be sure to send along is uh, the department that I work with recently conducted a database integration. And that's where we came up with that 40,000 people over the course of a year experiencing homelessness in King County. It's a much better way to, to count. So on a national basis, do we have comparable statistics? I'm just curious, between metropolitan areas, we do. And, and that goes back for quite a significant amount of time, I presume. Is there, is there a similar database for uh, dollars spent per capita and per homeless person uh, by metropolitan area over time? Uh, I, I don't think at that level of specificity, Mr. Chair, that you're talking about that there is, for example, a per capita expenditure of all people experiencing homelessness. I'm aware of multiple studies that have sort of taken a look at controlled populations, but I do not believe there's the comprehensive accounting that you're, I, I understand your question to BC. And I'm, and I'm, I, I, I'm not trying to make a point. I'm just, I'm truly wanting to become educated in this because one of the, the logical things that I, that I do wonder is, okay, if if you spend more and more money and, and, and create a, an attraction for the, the homeless population, are we gonna just make it more of a problem? And I'm not saying don't spend it, I'm just saying what, what's the most effective way to solve the problem uh, rather than, you know, and we can't, and, may, and maybe the solution is more either national, regional, statewide rather than countywide or whatever. I don't know the answer to it. I'm just looking for some data that you could use to try to help come to that conclusion. So, One of the uh, clearest correlations that we do see, Mr. Chair, is the cost of rent or mortgages relative to income. And so where we have rapid acceleration of cost of living and we do not have rapid acceleration of income or we have flat income, as has absolutely been the case in our region, and uh, I would argue every region where homelessness is growing significantly, it is primarily a function of we don't have enough housing that is affordable to the, to the people who earn the least. There are certainly exceptions where a person's homelessness might not be attributable to that, but the vast majority of homelessness is attributable to that. And that's why we see homelessness rising in the communities where cost of living is rising the fastest. And you don't see homelessness the highest, for example, at places that have the highest rates of incidence of behavioral health conditions, for example. Got it. Do we, does your program uh, prioritize people who have been residents of King County uh, over people who have not been residents of King County for X period of time? It, it's a good question. We get it a lot. A, a very straightforward answer is no. Um, uh, a reason is one, it, it, it turns out that it's sort of a fraught exercise to assign a person who is homeless the place where they are from. Uh, I do think also though, as a, you know, our community and the east side of our community in particular uh, is really vibrant because of our willingness to welcome people who are not quote unquote, you know, from here in any number of ways that people might define that. Um, and I, 
for what it's worth, believe that that is a really important value that has, you know, done our community very well that we could really apply in this context as well. Okay. I would like to jump in and say from the city's perspective, Rick, we, the idea of increasing that 50% minimum is one of our high priorities. We have an interest in the city of, we do have a homeless problem in the city of Kirkland. And uh, one of the strategies is to have beds locally, or at least on the east side, to have those folks available in order for us to facilitate them out of the tents and into the homeless facilities. So it is a high priority of the city of Kirkland to work with Leo and his team to increase the um, acceptance rate of uh, city of Kirkland and east side folks into the, this facility. Okay. It, it, along that uh, specific line of uh, thought, it, it, Leo made this statement that you, one of the goals is to enable people to stay in our city when they become homeless. But I'm trying to track on that because isn't, isn't it necessary for them to have experienced chronic homelessness over a long period of time before they are eligible for the facility? Uh, so eligibility, uh, chronically homeless or at risk of chronic homelessness. Um, and, and those, the, you know, the chronic homelessness is a federal definition. As I mentioned, it requires a person have experienced, uh, I believe it's at least three episodes of homelessness over the last year or one protracted episode of homelessness. And then at risk of chronic homelessness sort of uh, cast the aperture a little bit wider saying that if you weren't homeless for 12 months, but you were homeless for 10 months that you would still qualify. Um, and I would contend uh, that there are people who became homeless in Kirkland and Bellevue and uh, many cities on the east side of, of our county who uh, either are still there or had to actually leave because there was no place for them to go there. Okay. Um, there, uh, the, one other thing I wanted to ask Leo and, and Leo, you don't have to call me chair, right? I know that that's normal procedure, but just call me Rick. <laughs> I'm much more comfortable with that. Um, the, on on the, the city's website uh, where they describe the King County Health through housing um, program, they specifically stated that King County, well, well, actually it was an ordinance passed by the King County Council um, back in December of last year um, that adopted the, the initial health through housing implementation plan. And it, it states that King County and the city hold at least one public meeting in which members of the public may offer input and feedback to consider. The public meeting must be timed to occur after the county has negotiated an agreement and at a point in the process that the meeting does not risk an increase of price but the purpose of the meeting will be to inform a joint decision by the city and county staff on whether to proceed or how to proceed. So that, I'm, and that's, that was the thing that Jim and I really focused on when I, when I convinced him, we really had to have this, we felt like we were compelled to have this meeting and not that we're replacing the public meeting by any means, but I'm, I'm trying to reconcile how this process has worked so far with that specific language. Absolutely. Um, so one, we are uh, confident and will uh, comply with the tenets of our implementation plan as we go forward. And we believe that this 
uh, process. We'll get at that. Uh, Jim, you know, as to the spirit of it, you know, Jim has talked uh, at length about the amount of engagement going on. Um, we have also had a meeting with uh, members of the community uh, that was focused on the school. Um, and then we have this meeting going on right now. Um, uh, I uh, heard and, and, and noted the uh, articulation that this does not constitute a public meeting uh, from members of the committee. Um, I think the definition of a public meeting uh, is an important one for us to all uh, be aware of as we go forward. Um, and uh, the intent, so, so King County is going to comply with its implementation plan. The intent though is, as you mentioned, it is both to inform whether, but also, and, and, it is, and it's or, how to proceed. Um, and so uh, what we are uh, continuing to do even tonight is to receive and integrate uh, feedback. Uh, we have been doing that by email. We've been doing that in meetings. We've been doing that uh, in uh, phone calls and we will uh, receive, integrate uh, that feedback and determine how to proceed. Uh, I don't want to, you know, I'm not a coy person. I believe long-term credibility demands candor. Uh, we intend to purchase uh, the, the La Quinta building uh, the closure of that deal is approaching, but we've determined that it is a, a facility that uh, is feasible for the use. Um, and uh, we are in a, a tight discussion with the city right now on uh, what the process uh, can and should look like going forward. But uh, we wouldn't be here tonight if we didn't believe that this is the right thing to do, that this is an important uh, opportunity to solve an important problem or address an important problem in our community. Uh, and we're committed to also uh, uh, comporting with the requirements of, of our implementation plan and all the ordinances that control and statutes that control this this program. Okay, I, um, I, I'm, I, I, I guess I appreciate your your comment. I guess it sounds like the decision on whether to proceed with the purchase was made without a public meeting, though, is what I'm hearing from you. Is am I wrong about that? Uh, we have determined that. The facility is is you know one that is good for the use. Uh, we've been making that determination in particular over the last three weeks, and we are now focused on how to proceed in a good way that really meets the spirit of of a lot of the comments that I've heard from the members of the council uh, in this meeting tonight. Okay. Um, well, in the interest of time, and we're already uh, running uh, beyond what the scheduled time was, but one of the hallmarks of our uh, community council is. Um, we aren't as formal as King as the Kirkland Community or Kirkland City Council, but we try to make up for it by giving uh, everyone a chance to speak, and uh, we endeavor to accommodate everyone. With a hundred people out there, um, I don't know if it's going to be feasible to to have a have everyone speak. And so, uh, what I'm going to ask is that people refrain from making the same remarks over and over. We're going to strictly uh, enforce the three-minute limit on our comments, and if um, if your points have been made by a previous speaker, uh, just either defer from saying anything or at least limit it to uh, my main concerns were such and such, and I feel like the previous speakers have addressed it. Um, this will keep our meeting as timely and productive as it can be. Um, we'll use the raise your hand feature on Zoom to um, identify uh, speakers. 
Um, and in the interest of making this as efficient as possible, one of the things I did uh, prior to the meeting was I, I reviewed every single one of the letters that we received, and there were a lot of them. And I've, I've identified for um, Jeremy, all I'm going to say we've got maybe uh, five or 10 people whose letters were particularly um, uh, well written, and, and I wanted to give them a first priority. And, Hopefully they will cover this as efficient, more effectively and we'll be able to avoid having 100 people saying the same thing over and over. So I asked uh, Jeremy if he, and in no particular order of priority, uh, the na last names Dunn, Sun, Wei, uh, let me see, Wang, uh, Hanson, Brown, uh, there was a couple more and I'm, there they are. Uh, Olay and Schimmel, and that isn't to say that other people are not uh, welcome to speak, but I'd like to try to get uh, comments from those people initially and then um, see if anybody else has something to add to what they have to say. And um, with that, I, and I can't thank uh, Leo and, and Jim enough for, for, I really think it's a really helpful process to go through and I appreciate you guys sticking through this. So. With that, uh, I always rely on Jeremy to go through the process of uh, the hand raising from the audience and identifying speakers. When, you, when you're called upon, please get on immediately, unmute yourself and identify your name and address and we'll take it from there. Rick, real quick, can we add Brian Mistelli to that list, please? Sure. He's a business owner. Yes. Yeah, no, I, I don't wanna give the impression that those are the only people who can speak. Everybody is welcome to okay. speak. Okay. All I'm asking from the audience is let's try to hear the people who've written some of the more uh, comprehensive, you know, well thought letters initially, and then maybe they will have addressed the concerns of the, and, and we don't keep hearing the same thing over and over. That's my goal. So, Jeremy. All right. Thank you, Rick. And um, if you've spoken, uh, lower your hand to help me with keeping track of this also. Uh, but I do see Brian Olay with his hand up. Jeremy, in the interest of time, maybe have, uh, maybe say who's going to be on a deck uh, or maybe the next name or two coming up so that people are ready to jump on. Sure. I'd suggest the next three. Yeah. 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 Let's try to make this real efficient so we aren't wasting a lot of time between speakers. Okay. Brian, you're first. Um, and I see Fan Wang um, with a hand up also. So those are the first two. And I'm going to work on your list while those two address you. Thank you. Be sure you're unmuted. Ryan, speak. Hey, sorry. Oh, can you hear me now? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, sorry. I, I just got the feature. So um, appreciate everybody. Leo, I saw you're at an O2 grad. So this one's for you. I'm an O7 grad. Appreciate your service. Appreciate your continued service. So I'm just going to come at you straight. Um, it boils down to, can you prove these sites are safe? Referring to the 10 previously. I went through every single page of the 128 page um, implementation plan. Great plan. I think you also referred to uh, one of the appendix, uh, UW uh, Gates Foundation studies. Great study. 
based off that, it doesn't seem that safe. Here's why. So I'll get, again, the question is, are these sites safe? Based off this study, it seems unsafe. There were two key points. Firstly, um, over time, the number of 911 calls over 12 months went down from 20 to 25, down to around three to four. So you can kind of expect your next door neighbor to have four 911 calls per month. The second point was that the study uh, said that each uh, average stay was about 68 days. So you can kind of expect your next door neighbor to be gone fairly quickly. Um, combine that with what your points were earlier of, hey, 100% there are going to be some behavioral issues or people with behavioral issues, and 100% there's going to be some illicit drug use. So imagine your next door neighbor with those four points, three to four 911 calls per month, illegal drug use, um, and so on and so forth. So I'm not sure if that's an apples to oranges comparison to what is actually going to happen at La Quinta, but those are the things that kind of set off like lots of locals and, and me included my wife, like, Hey, this place isn't going to be safe. Conversely, what you could do is say, Hey, Brian, we actually have a ton of data on these 10 other sites. 911 calls did not go up. They actually went down. Is that something that you can provide or something that you've done? So again, in summary, the study shows it's not that safe. Can you prove otherwise? Does that make sense? Totally. Um, and uh, I won't uh, hold being an 07 grad against you, um, Brian, <laughs> a fellow graduate of the United States Military Academy. Um, so the uh, I think it's really important first, the UW study was taking a look at a very particular type of facility and that was in a hotel, but it was operating as a shelter. Uh, it was also a hotel that had 230 people inside of it. So. Uh, we, at the very beginning of COVID, uh, took the Downtown Emergency Services Center's uh, main shelter right on 3rd Avenue in front of the courthouse in downtown Seattle, lifted it up because people were sleeping six inches apart from each other, and moved it to a hotel on about a week's notice in order to prevent the spread of COVID um, and ideally save lives. You can never sort of prove the counterfactual. We believe that that at least promoted health in a significant way. It is also not the way that you would design permanent supportive housing. Uh, so they both show what a hotel can do versus being outside or being in a congregate facility. Um, and certainly that's a thing that we would see uh, with the La Quinta Hotel. Um, but uh, a shelter population, as you uh, mentioned, Brian, is by definition going to be a group that moves around more often. And part of permanent supportive housing is the fact that it is housing that is available permanently. So one data point is in permanent supportive housing across King County system, we see typically about 10% turnover over the course of a year of residence. So I would expect a far longer duration and tenure of tenancy uh, for the folks who are residing at the La Quinta Hotel than we saw in a shelter that was operating at a hotel. Another point, and, and again, I you know particularly for you, Brian, um, I am not going to uh, pretend to anybody that I can guarantee zero risk, absolute safety on anything we do. You can't guarantee that the minute you get in a car and drive on the highway. I certainly, you can't guarantee that uh, just being a member of your community right now. Um, what we can guarantee is that we are committed to the safety of the people who live around the facility. We are committed to the safety of the people who live within the facility and that uh, we are not helpless in that regard, that we know how to design programs, intervene programs and establish accountability that can promote that safety. The last thing I'll mention, Brian, is I, I do think that there is some cause to take a look at 911 calls and understand them with a little bit more fidelity and not equate a 911 call for violence. 
Uh, for example, if somebody on this call was having a heart attack right now, you would call 911. I don't think that that's a thing that most people would consider a bad thing. Um, and uh, as we've mentioned before, a lot of the folks who are going to be who have been living outside and come into permanent supportive housing uh, have significant health conditions, and we often call 911 uh, as as a way to care for their health. There are also issues inside of the facility sometimes, and and don't believe anybody who tells you that it's perfect. Uh, but uh, I think what you can interpret is when the operators see that there's an issue. They're going to call law enforcement sometimes too, because they want to have that person actually not be present in the larger facility because they are concerned with safety. So I wouldn't conflate all 911 calls with unsafe acts. Some of them, in fact, many of them are medical. When you take a look at the retin data in, in particular, there's a couple of days where like one person in a crisis called 911 14 times in one day. We were able to make an adjustment with the local law enforcement and first responders to say like, hey, if you call the front desk first and it's coming from room 1402, let us go up there and talk to that person first. And we were able to reduce the rate of incidents of 911 calls at that particular hotel, again, operating as a shelter over time, because uh, that is what we can guarantee that we will implement in a way that seeks continuous improvement. Um, and uh, I, I think that's, that's my off the cuff reaction to, to your question, Brian. Um, and, and that's great. Super and, helpful. No, no, okay. Rick, no. Rick, I, for, for everybody. Oh, go ahead, Jim. I just had a point of clarification because I guess the time limit is on us too, Leo, because my <laughs> understanding was it was <laughs> items from the audience. <laughs> items from the audience is what I, I thought we do at the council was everybody speaks for a period of time and then we move. Yeah, to I, I was about to be going to do a forum, <laughs> which is fine too. I feel like we have to guide ourselves with a hundred people yeah. out there. I, I, Jim, I was going to make the same comment that yeah. I was going to tell the rest of the audience, don't expect that you're going to get a personal response for every comment that's made. It, 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 in fact, what I prefer to do, unless it's something you can't remember, if there's somebody that brings a specific uh, question that, that hasn't been addressed before by you, anything you've presented, maybe make a note of it and, and you could, at the end of the uh, public comments, then maybe uh, maybe you could respond to a couple things, but in the interest of time, we're not going to be able to do that with everybody yeah. who speaks. So and for the, I am happy to do that, Rick. It's just the rule, the just so that everybody goes home yep. at some point. Ab absolutely, Jim. Yep. I, I was you and I are on the same page. <laughs> okay, so Jeremy, who's our next two or three speakers? Uh, thanks, Rick. Uh, next, I have Dietmar Schimmel, then Steve Kasner, and then Alice on. So, uh, Dietmar, uh, unmute yourself. Did I, did I not do that? Uh, hello, yeah, my name is Dietmar Schimmel. Uh, I'm a 20-year resident of Kirkland. And uh, for the sake of brevity, I'm getting straight to my questions. Echoing Mrs. Wright's uh, comments, uh, I don't see how this project will reduce homelessness uh, if we attract uh, for every 100 house people, 100 number of people to the area. I mean, ever since 2005 in Seattle uh, attempted to solve homelessness, the homelessness problem became worse and worse in the Seattle area, despite money being spent at astronomical levels to the extent of, as of at least 2018, uh, in the amount of $1 billion, according to the Puget Sound Business Journal. So um, I would like to know from King County uh, how, they would address the inflow from people to the area. Uh, the second question is, um, 
uh, it's pretty clear from the uh, housing through health uh, guidelines that uh, nobody really expects that uh, any of the residents will become uh, self-supporting uh, contributing taxpayers to the area. Uh, I don't would like to know why uh, government officials think uh, that housing people in the most in one of the most expensive areas of the nation is a successful attempt to solve it. I know there have been localities that solved homelessness like Rockford, Illinois. The difference there is that an average house price of 2,000 square foot costs less than 100,000 bucks. So I would think the chances of somebody to, of reintegrating residents would be much more promising if you uh, find a site in an in a inexpensive part of King County um, and uh, where you have a chance to reintegrate uh, people. Uh, another question I have actually, and that actually already expands to some comments Mr. Floor made uh, when he uh, uh, basically admitted that uh, King County is not intending to uh, uh, follow its own guidelines of only allowing legal drugs in the facility. I mean, how can any of the proclamations of King County be trusted? King County couldn't even guarantee the safety of the, its own courthouse in Seattle. King County cannot guarantee that buses are free of drugs as a recent article in the Seattle Times uh, drastically highlighted. So if, if King County cannot even guarantee the safety of drivers on, of, and uh, uh, passengers on King County buses, why would Kirkland residents trust King County to do a better job at the shelter? Gitmar, I appreciate your comments, but that's your three minutes. And I, yeah, thank you, Jeannie, you're on top of it. <laughs> thank you very much, Gitmar. Next. So, Chair Whitney, this is Steve Kasner, and I'm not speaking on the Quinta, I am speaking on what's going on in Olympia. And as much as I would like to present now, I would respect your ruling if you would rather we wait to finish this topic before we switch back to the other one. No, this isn't a public hearing on this side. It's a, this is our items of the audience. So you, you, you better start talking on what you have to say real quickly, Steve. We have three minute limit. You've, you've already used half of a, half a minute. <laughs> All right. Um, as you know, I mean, I, I mean, this has been draining on all of us. I want to talk about heroes and villains. I want to thank the hundreds of people who have stepped up and um, supported us um, in your area, in my area. Um, it, that is very gratifying to me. Um, some live within our areas, some do not. I want to call out the very courageous vote of my legislator, uh, me Lin Tai, who was the only Democrat to vote with us. And part of the reason she vote with us was she, one of her highest issues is the diversity issue. And as I've been talking to her, she voted with us in part because this has been characterized as an equity and diversity issue. And she could not accept that. So she voted against the bill in favor of us. Uh, you know, there's been very many villains on both councils. Um, some of the folks who have testified in Olympia 
um, you know, Toby Nixon and Mayor Lynn Robinson from Bellevue, who were not sticking to the facts. Mayor Robinson presented that the councils were only envisioned to be there for four years. And finally, somebody who I totally respected before this process, Senator Patty Kuderer, who took some very strong positions against us and has never talked to anyone on either of the councils. There's a bunch of things going down in the next couple of days. We will continue to fight. Thank you very much for taking my testimony this evening. And I believe what we do is very important. If you are listening to this call and want to support us, please contact anybody you know in Olympia. Thank you very much. And I will continue to listen because it's fun to sit in the audience and watch you guys work. Thank Thanks, you Steve. all for your service. Okay, next. <laughs> uh, Jeremy, who's our next speaker? Alice, um, Alice Field, there you go. Hi, thank you. Thank you everyone. Um, since I have three minutes, I'm gonna cut it real quick. Leo, thank you for your info. If everything was as euphoric as you said, it'd be great. I actually visited a site yesterday purchased by King County on Aurora, 14115. It was purchased in June, 2021 in operation op October, 2021. I spoke with someone outside. There's no background check. Anyone can come in, drug use, alcohol use, Naked people running around 30 feet away from the building was a prostitute. Fences all around the building, which was not around before. My kid is studying 30 feet away. They can clearly see the windows from La Quinta. How is this possible? I've asked numerous times, what is the criteria for a site selection? Kirkland County said, look to King County. King County said, look to Mark Ellenberg, who's in charge of it. I've sent numerous emails, no one has responded. I understand that is morally correct to help the needy, which I know we all need to, but do we have to do this 30 feet away from children. No one has been able to answer this. You say there's criteria, there's set rules, but being on site yesterday was very disheartening. The people I spoke with outside told me, not directly, you do not wanna be out here in the evening. Is this how we want our kids to learn from? What are your criterias? No one has been able to answer that. What are your selection criterias? I, I can be maybe emotional about this, but the point is there was not a community, community engagement prior to this selection. And now you're saying Yes, let's talk about this. Let's work together, but it's after the fact. But since it hasn't closed yet, the property has not closed yet, it can still be an opportunity for you to decide, for you to decide and the community to decide if it is a good 
location for everyone. So please listen to us. Please listen to us and help us. Thanks, Alice. Thank you very much. Okay. Next. Who's next? Jeremy, let's keep our light. Our yeah, next three are Sharon, who's listed as a Kirkland residence, then Lee, no last name, and then Bob Roth, Roth. Okay. Sharon. Sharon, we're not hearing you. Unmute. Sharon, if you don't unmute, you're gonna be skipped as a speaker. We're missing, we're losing time. Okay, who's next, Jeremy? Okay, I see Rob. Rob, would you please speak? Yes, good evening, thank you. And I'd like to thank the Houghton Community Council for giving us a chance to be heard because um, I have lived and worked in this area for 40 years. Uh, I appreciate the problem that King County is dealing with. Uh, I think unfortunately they have picked a site uh, for what they're trying to put together, which is a low barrier facility that would include convicted felons, that would include sex offenders, drug addicts. I think this is very, very poorly planned. Just the fact that there's a building there doesn't mean that you buy it for this use. If that use is putting our kids at risk, putting uh, the community into a situation where there's significant workers uh, within just a few feet of this property, uh, that will have to, and, and businesses that r rely on uh, lack, uh, rely on uh, people coming in and out, as is in the Burgermaster, that is the restaurant right adjacent, an outdoor facility. Um, I think we need to look at the fact that this has been done in secret. We have not been included in a process. Uh, I think the chairman of this meeting tonight, uh, Rick Whitney, uh, has uh, indicated that there, this process is not recognized yet as the process they were supposed to be doing. And I feel that time needs to be spent to properly decide what buffers and what protections are gonna be provided our students uh, and the safety of our employees uh, that work and operate there in immediate proximity. And I just don't think that has been addressed I think that there's been a lot of, and the fact that the county already acknowledges that this won't be housing uh, children or young adults or families because this is a low barrier, high crime, or at least much more potential for crime and assaults uh, and other things that will come with this, uh, drug use, uh, potential that we've heard about increasing crime prostitution was just mentioned. Uh, these are not the things you normally put with families, so I understand that, but it also is not something that we want, and I've lived here for 40 years, we don't have a serious homeless problem, 
And we're inviting the Seattle homeless to come into this community. I heard up to 80 or 85% uh, potentially uh, from outside the area that are homeless with these problems being introduced to our schools and our kids. Uh, and the idea that I had heard the mayor mention that, well, we don't really, this is the mayor of Kirkland, we don't need to put the kids in a bubble. My God, this isn't a bubble. This is just being logically realistic. Provide a barrier. That's My it. time Thank is you. up. Thank you. Appreciate it. <laughs> Thank you for the time tonight. Thank you. You're welcome. And is Mr. Lee, or I, is it, a, I didn't get the first name. Good. Lee, yeah. Lee. Uh, thank you for hosting this meeting and uh, give a chance for the public comments. So I'll go straight to the uh, question and the comments. So uh, Mr. Leo Flaw, I think you missed one thing. There are safety concerns, but these safety concerns are not on the um, normal, the population of the normal homeless. These safety concerns are on the population of uh, uh, potential criminals and sex offenders and uh, drug addictives, and especially the illegal drug usage could be a potential residence in this facility, as uh, Leo, you mentioned. Uh, and where the safety concerns are coming from, if you read in the news, uh, in May 2021, there was a Como news that King County Courthouse staff quitting blame safety issues at homeless camp around the King County Courthouse. And there was a, a defense lawyer got uh, beaten, harassed twice right in front of King County Courthouse uh, from the homeless camp. And just yesterday, there was uh, one shooting at the uh, intersection of the Third Avenue uh, crossing with uh, Pine Streets. This is a second shooting uh, within the two weeks. So um, I'm reading, I'm going to read a quick comments uh, from that uh, someone shared uh, on the social media. It says low income housing institute put a community house near uh, our elementary school in Seattle. The people running it said it was for homeless seniors and those with compromised health conditions. Well, some of the residents put up tents behind the school and started doing drugs in them. A dealer started visiting every day and then a bunch of people started living at the school. You wouldn't believe how bad it got. Don't subject children to this. Like don't let them operate this so close to schools. And and I also have two specific comments to the cost efficiency comment that Leo you just made. So if someone breaks law, they need to go to school, not because of a cost efficiency concern, you decided to, King County decides to put them close to schools instead of put them in jail. You, you will find like children's safety and a children's health will be so priceless that King County will never be able to pay. And so one other question is when you mentioned when there are uh, people behaving, especially badly, they will be removed from this facility. So my question is, uh, where will, will they go? Will they wander on the streets? Will they go into the adjacent schools to harass students? Like when people are behaving, especially um, bad behavior in this facility, and then when you remove them, where do you think they will go? Thank you, Lee. Thank you. Thank you very much. Who's next, Jeremy? We're next two or three speakers. 
Uh, next three is Berna, then Julia U, and then initials YL. Good evening. Good evening. Can yes. you hear me? Yes, yes, please go. Um, thank you for all that you have presented so far. I think it was a, a lot of very good information. But um, I am a new resident to Kirkland, having moved here from Santa Barbara, where I have worked with the homeless um, and projects to support the homeless situation for many years. Um, one of the things that I would um, like to speak about is the fact that you are using private operators to uh, run these facilities. And I would question the type of contractual agreement that you have with these private operators, because those are the individuals who are the first line responsibility in all of these things that the various individuals have mentioned this evening. And that's a tremendous amount of responsibility that ends up being in the hands of, of individuals who are for-profit individuals. And we've seen what's happened in our uh, our incarcerations in our penal system. And I can see this very much a problem in your system as well. In Santa Barbara, we chose to keep our homeless uh, issues in the hands of our local community uh, organizations, which has worked very well because we wanted to keep um, responsibility and not turn it over to anything that was a contract with the private organization. That would be the first thing. The second thing that I would say is you've chosen this site, which is obviously a uh, very contentious uh, site because of all of your schools and businesses. Have you exhausted all the other places that this site could be placed? I believe that you have a responsibility to uh, present that to your citizens because in my mind and in my history of working in Santa Barbara, this would never pass in, um, in our council to place uh, a site like this in um, an area where you have schools and you have businesses. You have a responsibility to your homeless. And we, I totally agree with that. But you also have a responsibility to your businesses and to your schools. And I would see as a parent that if this home went in in close proximity to a school where I was sending young children, I would be pulling my children out of that school. So you're putting businesses and schools in jeopardy. Thank you very much, Perna. Next. Who's our next speaker? Yes, hi, uh, this is Julia. I'm a parent to a local school and we have attended this school for over six years and we really enjoyed this uh, city and then the nice people. And we also thank for the public servants for the work. Um, I have uh, two questions. One is that the facility will be staffed and 24, 24 seven and uh, whether uh, the facility where the people will be, uh, the service will be available when the residents go outside, uh, when they go visit the city, go somewhere, and then when they need help outside the facility, whether they will be staffed, and then when they interact with the school uh, children or actually going to part of the Kirkland town, and then what, how, what, if something need to, if something happens and they need help, how will the staffing and the facility help out? 
That's first question. The second is that I understand that we all want safety. And then you also mentioned and then uh, several times that we all want safety, but want not necessarily is going to happen. So if something happened, who is going to be accountable for uh, whether a children get hurt or some somebody get hurt or property get damaged? Um, whether we should hold the city of Kirkland accountable or the King County accountable, who is going to be accountable for something happened and whether there's going to be a plan to redirect the course of the facility if it doesn't work. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. And next, YL. Could you, could you give us your name, please? <laughs> oh, my name is Yongli. My first name is Yongli. Can you hear me? Okay, yes, please go. Okay, so I have lived in Kirkland since 2013, and uh, my house is within walking distance from the project. You are going to transform to a homeless shelter. Uh, I have two quick questions. The first question is, it's very straightforward. So why do you choose such place so close to school and kindergarten? So do you really think, do you really think safety is not important at all for our children? The second question, I want to share you a code fact with you. I think you must be aware with this fact. You know a project uh, that's a inn in located at Queen Anne in Seattle. Uh, this inn was transformed into a homeless shelter about uh, May, uh, 2021 May. Since the transformation, the local violent crime, crime has doubled. So my question is, if crime in future doubled in our local community, what will you do? Will you close this homeless shelter? You, at my office in Seattle, I know how many crimes committed by homeless, how many random attacks, recently very serious attack on a Chinese woman in Seattle. You cannot negate the high correlation between homeless and crimes. So in future, if this tragedy happens to our children, what will you do? Anyone will take responsibility. That's Thank all. You, That's Thank question. you very much. Jeremy, who are the next three? Next three are William, then um, Katalinov, uh, sorry if I botched the name, Altano, and then Carrie. And, and I will, uh, we've heard a lot of concerns and we hear it loud and clear as far as the safety issues. So please don't, if you're speaking to that as your primary issue, I, the point's been made. With that, proceed please, William. Hi, um, I'm William. I am a resident of Kirkland and Houghton. Uh, I would like to ask two questions. Uh, number one is, uh, since this does not have a filter to siphon out the homeless community in King County, and it sounds like anybody can just be uh, potentially housed here. How is it fair for the taxpayers of King County and the city of Kirkland to be forced to pay this charity tax, especially with so many of us not even want this uh, facility to be built here due to various concerns? And uh, why, uh, why is this um, not built in another place such as Seattle where the facility will be needed more by a larger homeless population there? Um, and how, like, how do you prevent people outside from, from King County to be housed here? And if it's, if it's not, um, then I don't believe this is fair for us to pay for the uh, housing facility for people across the country. We cannot afford that. 
that's number one. And number two, uh, this is a more meta question uh, for the folks who have asked previous question earlier, such as accountability issue um, and other concerns, such as um, the uh, the uh, requirements or um, such such as the uh, different categories, a categorization of what uh, what's needed to uh, find a facility or site a facility. What, how are these questions going to be answered to us? Will it be uh, via emails or be via newsletters in the future? And how can more of City of Kirkland residents get to or King County residents get to know about this? Thanks, William. I think that may have been addressed earlier, but uh, if you check the information, I'm sure the city, if you're on the listserv, you will get informed and you'll be full participant in the process. That's right. Who's next? Thank you. Is Catalan next? Yep. Okay. Okay, so I know uh, you asked for maybe less information on safety. I'll just add a very quick note. So I, I tried very hard to find facts uh, on this type of facilities, the impact. I did find a study uh, authored by King County. It's called, we can find it online, Impact of Supported Housing on Acute Care and Jail Utilization. So actually just talking about numbers, right? So yes, these this housing facilities do help reduce jail time and, uh, and you know, do help uh, or provide general improvement. However, this study, and again, that's a document that's available authored by King County. It's a bit dated, so it goes back a, a number of years. Uh, does mention a reduction from 2,000 jail days to 1,000 jail days, from 4,500 jail days to 2,000 jail days. The reality is that while there's a reduction, there's still a significant number of jail days that the, the residents in you know, the permanent supported, housing, uh, uh, permanent supported housing do go through. And again, I'm correlating that with the fact that the, the, the facility on Aurora, Aurora Avenue mentioned by a previous speaker does have a barbed wire fence. I've been in Kirkland for 16 years. I have never seen any, any building location uh, business in Kirkland that, has bar that needs barbed wire to protect the people inside or outside. So placing this facility or we see based on studies, official studies, that there's still a significant recurrence of jail time. Again, people just breaking the law, uh, placing this, you know, the, the need to add barbed wire, placing this next to four or five schools within immediate proximity with no buffer, raises a very significant risk to safety. I heard that people that break the law or break the rules are gonna be kicked out. But if they break the law by hurting, by kicking, by whatever, attacking our kids, that's a risk that we shouldn't consider or shouldn't take. And that's the reason for a buffer. We need a buffer so that we allow for time for the community or the emergency services or the cops to step in if someone is kind of randomly running down the street with a baseball bat. No buffer means that cannot be done. Thank you very much. Thank you, Kevin. Jeremy, who's our next couple speakers? And are we getting down on our list? Carrie, you're up. Thank you, Carrie. What's your last name? I wanted to offer a student perspective. Hello, my name is Abby. I'm a ninth grader at Eastside Prep and I'm supportive of low-income housing. Please know that I will be the first to volunteer to help our homeless neighbors if it is deemed safe. I'm speaking tonight because the county's permanent supportive housing does not sound like low-income housing, like Vine Maple Place, Mary's Place, or the Sophia Way at the Salt House it sounds more like the inn at Queen Anne, a permanent supportive housing facility where police reported double the incidence of violent crime for the year after it opened. Or the Ale Humphrey House, where just this month, a resident struck a woman in the back of the head with a baseball bat as she walked home. Again, I'm supportive of low-income housing. 
but I'm afraid for my and my friend's safety of permanent supportive housing, particularly permanent supportive housing that has no buffer with my school. I walk out of basketball practice just 50 feet from La Quinta in the dark every night in the winter. From the health through housing FAQs, I understand to be considered for permanent supportive housing, a resident must be disabled, with many of the residents being severely mentally ill and or chronically addicted to drugs and or involved in the criminal justice system. I understand that there are no background checks, some screening, but no background checks. Convicted felons, sex offenders. I understand residents will not be required to abstain from using drugs or alcohol. Active drug users around my school, inebriated people on the corner. I also understand residents will not be required to accept treatment for addiction or mental illness, optional treatment. And no security is planned for the facility. As Mr. Leo Flora from the county confirmed, no security. I understand that there's not a plan. A couple weeks ago, Mayor Sweet said that the planning starts today. No operator identified, no systems in place, and we have no buffer to help keep us safe at school. Mayor Sweet also said that Kirkland hopes to be the model, that the council has nothing to point to, and that her confidence is based on her gut. Her gut, no plan. Kirkland City Council members, I'm afraid for my classmates, my teachers, and for me. I heard Mr. Leo Flor say that they will only purchase a permanent supportive housing hotel if the city is a willing partner, if the city agrees to purchase. Please pause and reconsider alternatives. Thank you, Carrie. Who's, who's up, Jeremy? Uh, 14 more, Rick. Uh, next up is Patty, and then Karina O'Malley, and then Michelle. And, and I want to emphasize, we, we understand here loud and clear about concerns with safety. I, I really do not want to have more speeches that are emphasizing your concerns with safety because the point has been made and you know we, we really need to be as effective with our time as we can tonight. It's getting late. With that, Patty, if you have something to add besides safety, we would love to hear it. Well, I'm here with my girlfriend and we both live in Kirkland and we've lived in the safe uh, in community for some time. I feel as though this idea is very short-sighted. I don't feel like there's a big plan. I feel if we're looking at what's happened in Seattle, it might be coming to the east side. And I'm concerned about that as a house owner uh, there, I am also very uh, compassionate about people that are living on the street. It is not um, compassionate that we allow people to live on the street. And I think that we need to look at a big big idea to, to um, take care of um, people that need, that need help. But I also would look at, we're looking at, um, there is a big population of drug users, uh, mentally ill, and we got to look at a big plan. And I don't think by just housing people in Kirkland 
I'd like to know what the big plan is. And I think the young woman that spoke about, um, you know, her, her, her perspective was spot on. Um, and that's my same perspective. And I think that, I mean, we gotta think of a big plan. Okay, thank you, Patty. Next. Karina. Hi, I'm Karina O'Malley and I live in the, uh, the Houghton area. And um, I, please forgive me, but I do wanna talk about safety and I wanna talk about accountability. I would like to know who is accountable to Bruce Thomas, who died outside in Kirkland in June of 2016. And I'd like to know who's accountable for a friend of mine, Sheila Christensen, who died of hypothermia in Kirkland on December 15th, 2019. Okay, I heard some comments from the council that made it sound like you didn't believe that there were people who were chronically homeless in Kirkland and that you were a little suspicious that people actually died of hypothermia. Well, I can say that I personally know people who are chronically homeless in Kirkland and who have died of hypothermia. And that is the biggest safety issue I think we should be talking about here. I would also like to reassure folks, if you don't know somebody who has a substance use disorder, they're people and they're not dangerous. I have known many people with substance use disorders, some housed, some unhoused, and they have never hurt children. They have never hurt anyone except possibly themselves. So the idea that you can conflate somebody with a substance use disorder or a mental health issue with being a danger to children is really quite um, insulting and discriminatory. Thank you, Karina. Who do we have for our next speaker? Michelle, if, if, if from, from what you're saying, keep kids safe, it sounds like it's more safety. Yeah. <laughs> right, I don't talk about safety and something else. And okay. I, I listened a couple of times of uh, Mr. Leo's presentation. And uh, so he compared like emergency room and uh, uh, like a prison and uh, this uh, housing, you know, support housing program, how cost efficiently and uh, you know, save a lot of money. I have a question here. When you compare this uh, supporting house with the emergency room, I can understand because you know, they, if they're sick or anything, we can help them live there. But I'm not very understand why you compare the prisons with the this supporting houses. Are you do you mean that this supporting house will replace a part of the prison's function and? Uh, so if that is the case, do you think it's safe to place this kind of facility besides the schools? And also compared to the security levels, those houses security levels much lower than the prison. So how come you think this is gonna be like, no, there's no safety problem in, to the children around this facility? Thank you. Yeah, that's Michelle. my only question. Thank that's, you. Thank you. Who's next? Next three are Dalen Roth, Kevin Jones, and Jennifer Loy. 
Okay. And again, please try to keep it to points that haven't been made. Okay. First off, I want to say a thank you to the Houghton City Council because you guys are the only ones who have started any community engagement on this. Uh, we are owners adjacent to La Quinta and we've had no reach out from either King County or City of Kirkland. Um, we're very upset about the secrecy of all this going on and we've reached out to our neighbors who have all said the same thing that there's been no reach out to them as well. Um, I'll lightly touch on the safety issue uh, as this is what everybody is concerned about who's on here. Um, I did research about the past history and there hasn't been too much uh, on the other sites, the um, records of the problems at the other sites. And I'm just wondering how King County has measured the success of uh, these other sites. There's been police reports of a resident lighting their room on fire, a resident barricading themselves on the sixth floor and trying to light the floor on fire, and then a prostitution ring in the North Seattle location. Uh, then someone just touched on the person who is now currently in a coma from a resident of the, the uh, Belltown or Queen Anne facility who uh, struck a lady with a baseball bat. Um, and that all happened just since you've been under contract with this facility here at the La Quinta. Um, and I just wanna say, do you really think that this is a good thing to have around 12 schools in an immediate proximity? But another question I wanna bring up is to the city of Kirkland, uh, wondering if this is such a good idea, why are you putting this as far away from the Kirkland city downtown as possible and as close to Bellevue as possible? And in doing this, you're putting it around a whole conglomerate of schools. That's all I've got to say. Thank you, Dylan. Who's our next speaker? Jennifer, please don't talk about safety. <laughs> we care, we hear you, but- Can you hear me? I do, we do, yes. Can you see me? No. Are we not, are we not able to- uh... No, no. <laughs> okay, well, that's too bad. I got all ready for you. Um, hey, um, I know a lot's been said already. My name's Jennifer Loy. I've been a resident of Kirkland for 30 years. I've been a resident for Ho from Houghton for 20 years. And um, I think it is um, remarkable that we don't have any city council representation listening to this right now. Um, I appreciate, Jim, that you are here, but I find it um, incredibly troubling that you could not off the cuff answer the difference between the Sophia Way and the La Quinta. That is incredibly troubling that our that the city, you, the city manager and the city council have offered an invitation to King County to come in and put a low barrier facility in. And you cannot off the cuff tell us the difference between a women and children's shelter and a low barrier housing shelter at La Quinta. That's just completely negligent. Well, Jennifer, um, if I could just jump in, thank you. Oh, well, no, no, just, just a minute. I'd love to have you jump in, Jim. Thank you sure. so much. Um, the, the thing that I want to know that hasn't been brought up is I want to know, Jim, um, and city council, is there a legal way to get out of this when it invariably goes very wrong? So before you um, offer the invitation 
to get into something, you need to know that if it goes wrong, you can legally get out of it. So that's my first one. My second one is, do you have a cost assessment of increased fire, sanitation, EMT, fire department, and police resources that will likely be required to support this facility and cost the taxpayers of Kirkland? Um, so those are the two things there. And Leo, I'd love to have you jump in on that. I'm sorry, Jim. But I have a couple of questions for Leo, and I only have a couple minutes. No, Leo. you got about one. <laughs> okay, I got one minute. I would like to respond. No, no, no. Hold on, hold up. Don't take my time. Don't take my time. Um, Leo from King County, um, is there a mechanism within these facilities to involuntarily commit someone who's of such drastic mental health um, situation that they can be involuntarily committed from these facilities? Number two. Um, if someone decides to take you up on services for drug or alcohol recovery, do you have a mechanism to move them to a place without other people that are using? Because that is the number one of Alcoholics Anonymous is you should not be around other people using and consuming drugs, drugs if you're trying to recover. So where will you move those people that would like to do that? And number three, if people get kicked out for any reason, where's the flow chart, chart on where will these people go? Where do you, what, what accountability do you have and where do the people go that will get kicked out invariably, even if it's just a small number? Thank you. Thanks, so thank you. Rick, so if I could respond. Quickly. Yeah, go ahead, Jim. Yeah, so uh, thank you. My confusion or my lack of response on the women and family shelter is that it is sometimes referred to as a permanent shelter. So uh, Helen's Way is a shelter which is different than permanent support, supportive housing in that it's not a permanent solution. In the health or housing program, it is a permanent solution. Sometimes the uh, Sophia Way or Helen's Place is referred to as a permanent shelter. So the details do get a little nuanced as to how long people stay there. And my response is to send you a more detailed paper on that if you'd like to know the difference. But one is a shelter, one is permanent housing, and that is what King County is proposing. And for folks who are asking about the criteria, we have put the criteria on our FAQs. The council did send them to, uh, the county did send them to us. And lastly, I do think several members of the city council are on the call tonight listening to what you're saying. And we have been sending all of the responses that we've had to date over this month to them. So thank you, Rick, and we'll keep rolling. Thank you, Jim. <laughs> Who's next? Stacy. Yep. Hi, can you hear me? Yes. I, I'll keep this really fast. So I would like to point out, oh, sorry, before I start, um, I actually do live here in Houghton. So I just wanna make that known too. Yes. Um, I would like to point out that both the New Bethlehem Center and the Safe Parking Program in Kirkland are both near schools. New Bethlehem is literally across the street from Lake Washington High School. And the Safe Parking Program is in the same building as two schools, one of which is a preschool with children as young as two years old. Um, all three of my children have attended that preschool, and we have never had any issues with the residents. I think it's unfortunate that some of the folks in our area equate homelessness with criminal activity. It makes me really, really sad. And um, I think we should all remember that we live in one of the most expensive places in the country. We need to be taking care of each other. And um, I hope that you remember that. Um, everybody. And also, I just want to say thank you for all of the information tonight. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Who's next? Ellie Peterson and then okay. Randy Akers. Good. Go, Ellie. 
Thanks so much, Rick. I promise you I timed this one before I... I'm a resident of Houghton. I've lived here for eight years. My kids attend the public school here. Um, I'm also the board president for North Lake Unitarian Universalist Church on State Street. I'd like to counter the narrative that people experiencing homelessness aren't already here. I have volunteered serving meals at the emergency shelters on the east side, and our church even hosted one for a month when another church was unable to. We can't provide the service regularly because we don't have laundering and showering facilities. And it was one of these nights serving meals that I recognized some of the kids laying on mats on our church floor happened to go to school with my kids. So people are experiencing homelessness and housing insecurity right here in our community in South Kirkland. As Stacy mentioned, they are living in their cars in church parking lots. They are already paying for a cheap hotel room near the freeway when they need heat and shower. And if you think it isn't getting worse, given the current state of our economy and the rising cost of housing, you are fooling yourself. They are our community members, our neighbors, and we need to treat them as such. I'm also, I'm also a teacher at a K-8 independent school in Seattle. And there is a homeless encampment about a block away from us. I will let you know there have been zero threats to the safety of our school community. Not only that, but we have taken students to serve meals to those experiencing homelessness through Operation Sack Lunch at the housing facility on Alaskan Way. And also under the Cherry Street overpass, we have sorted donations and clean kitchens at other facilities as well downtown. These experiences... These alliances, if we see them that way, were not scary or grim for our students. They were enriching and meaningful. I am telling you, you have never seen so many kids who wanted to scoop meatballs or pass out slices of cornbread. And when we would leave, they would say they were so nice. They were so grateful. You know, like they were surprised to see that those experiencing poverty and homelessness are people just like us. And I just want to reiterate that they are people just like us. Thank you. Thank you, Ellie. Who is next? Randy. Randy, you're up. Yep. Can you hear me? Yes. Go. Okay. Uh, I, I almost have a toothache from that last week. <laughs> it was so sweet for comment. Uh, I, I just a couple, I'm just gonna make some statements. I, I wonder why every man, woman, he, she, LGBTQ can email me or mail me a letter about elections or whatever, but we couldn't get anything other than hey, go to this neat Facebook if you stumble onto it to find out about what's going on with this La Quinta. So I kind of chuckle about that one. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about because I come from some some credibility and background on this. One. I was incarcerated. Two, uh, I fought my way out of that. Three, I worked at a motel that was designated a low-income, newly released prisoners, uh, drug abuse, state-managed state, state managed personnel. Uh, so I experienced it all from A to Z. Uh, I don't want to talk about safety, but the things that I saw were massive drug abuse, smoke alarms installed that went off constantly from crack and meth, violence, destruction of our property and the neighbors, prostitution, drug sales, bud bugs, and on and on, and on nonstop police calls. So just speaking from experience, I'm not trying to harp on the whole safety thing. 
Within my job now, I have worked with friends of youth. They manage properties for younger children, uh, homeless teens, homeless mothers with children. Uh, I went into their facilities. Every single one, literally, I saw drugs, alcohol, filth, and abuse. All I'm asking is, what are you doing to give these people skill sets to get back on the street? And you don't. You give them a shelter, you give them food, you give them a bed, and you don't give them any skill sets. I live in a community a mile away from La Quinta. At Hope Link, I coordinated a large food drive and we gave over about 5,000 pounds of food and clothing. I now work in Seattle. I drive by 15 uh, uh, homeless shelters, food banks, and all I see is filth and trash and such. I didn't move here to Kirkland and pay the dollars that we did to, to have to endure this. And I, I, I think it's below the radar that you've come out here. And, and it's almost a, fru a frugal, frugal effort because as Mr. What is this, Leo has said, we're doing it. We appreciate your comments, but we're going to go ahead and do it so you can enjoy the ride and just sit there and take it. And that's what really infuriates me. I don't, I don't think it's been done. Uh, politically. I don't think it's been done on the up and up. And like I said, I speak from experience. I've seen it. I've been on both sides. So you can't tell Andy, me. that's Go it. Ahead. Thank you. Th three minutes is up. Yeah. Appreciate it. Thank you. Who's next? Uh, two, we've lost uh, Sharon and then Kevin Jones. I think they're back to you both. Of course not. They're just going through the bases. No, you're, yeah, Sharon. Sharon. Hi there. Can you hear me okay? Yes. Oh, thanks you guys for hearing all of us Kirkland residents. Um, everyone, and I second um, Jennifer Loy um, and all of her comments. Um, I'm really concerned as a mom, as a Kirkland resident, um, as a parent about what is going to happen. I also have worked at two county hospitals. I'm a practitioner over 26 some years, and I'm very concerned about what going to be happening. I've also worked with Jeff Lilly um, through the homeless, um, you know, um, at UGM down in Seattle. And I'm really concerned. I mean, he, um, but I just want everybody to know that tomorrow, um, I would hope everybody can join us Tuesday at 430 in Kirkland City Hall, um, just to share our concerns. Um, there'll be several of us down there with billboards, and just voicing our concerns and bringing community respect and integrity together um, to make, you know, um, to hopefully, you know, we can all come together and just change this because this is not okay. You know, as we have not as a community been aware of this for a long time and I hope that we can all come together. So thank you. Thank you, Sharon. Kent, please start. Kent, unmute. Try that. Go. Kent, unmute, please. Or we're, we're gonna have to move on. Am I better there? There, go. Your oh, good. You're losing That's time. Good, I've gotten to know my neighbors through this and I'm Sorry it's been in this way. I think this is a good discussion. Uh, I was a uh, 
congregate care licensor and complaint investigator for Washington State for five years, um, inspected facilities in Greater King County, according to the uh, wax and delivery of care. I was also a, uh, an RN at the UW on the lock, locked psych unit for 15 years. And I think we do have a problem until the delivery of services is better uh, described. Leo has said several times about as they design the program, there's too much left um, unknown at this time and also who the operator is. The day-to-day -day boots on the ground is going to be whether or not this facility uh, is successful or becomes more of a problem, especially with the residents that are um, being considered. So I think there's a lot left unknown at this time and Kirkland and the community needs to have some guardrails here. So thank you. Thank you, Ken. Is there anyone else, Jeremy? Uh, hey, Mike, yeah. Mike, go. Hi, Rick, uh, Jeremy, thank you so much for letting me speak. My name is Mike Raskin. I'm a business owner for over 30 years and a EPS parent here in uh, Kirkland. I'm certainly supportive of finding solutions for the homeless, but have grave concerns about locating it next to a school. As uh, Councilor Ruth said, within 100 feet of a school and 50 feet from where kids are playing. And I'm not alone in this concern. Over 3,500 other people share the same concern and desire safe distances between schools and these types of facilities. I kind of want to make two points, and don't worry, Rick, none of them are about safety. I want to talk about process. The Kirkland City Council has done this backwards. You don't approve a location and then talk about the risks and how to make it safe. You have an open public conversation about those risks before you approve it, and they didn't do it. Leo says no risks. Maybe he's right. We've heard 30 or perhaps more parents on this call or people on the course say, saying they feel there are risks. This is the kind of conversation that the Kirkland City Council should have before they approve it, not after. The second point I wanna make is the county has said they won't go into any location without city, report, city support. Why does it need to be near a school? The city of Kirkland can certainly make that stipulation and did make that stipulation um, up at Lake Washington at the uh, women's shelter that was mentioned there, the city council in 2019 specifically said it needed to be a thousand feet from a school building. Why aren't they doing the same here? I wanna talk about process and I guess I'll leave, leave you with this. Um, I know that the Houghton Council has the ability to veto things in Kirkland. Um, and I really feel like the process that the city council has taken is so egregious uh, that it is really worthy of Houghton's veto or perhaps a better way to put it, it's worthy of Houghton saying to the council, please put, push the pause button and have the open public dialogue that, that Kirkland deserves before you approve it. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mike. Are there any other speakers, Jeremy? 
Okay. I still had um, Kevin Jones, uh, Tanya Dempsey, and A. Pellegrini. Okay, and I'm gonna I'm gonna reiterate. Please don't bring up safety. We we hear it loud and clear. We don't need more safety comments. The, the, those hands keep going up and down, so I'm not sure if they're still there. Yeah, take them down if if that's your issue. The issue has been clearly expressed. I'm I'm still seeing through the three he mentioned. So okay, so Kevin Jones, um, I think we've lost you a couple of times. Why don't you go? Unmute, Kevin. Time's running. We hear you. Go. Great. Thank you all. Thank the council. And uh, thank you, Leo, for your input. Sounds like you got a great heart. But I have to say that this seems like you're a little far removed from the actual situation that we're all trying to discuss here. Um, one thing that has not been addressed that I kept hearing on the news was La Quinta was the only property that was desirable and they never mentioned why. And I don't know still to this point after your discussion, your presentation, why the La Quinta is such a desirable property for the uh, homeless shelter. You've already mentioned they don't have kitchenettes. There's no central kitchen. Uh, one of the council members brought up the devil is in the details, and I don't think you've thought this through. And to have, as many have mentioned already, the city council approve this without having a forum ahead of time is baffling to me. And that's already been voiced, so I won't put any more effort into that. Um, you mentioned that you work in, I believe you said the Chinook building, downtown Seattle, across from the King County Jail. Well, I just watched over the weekend uh, our new mayor, I know he's not King County, but the mayor of Seattle, voice that the homeless encampment across from City Hall has been ongoing for, I, I think, at least three years. And there's been fires, there's been attacks, as some people have mentioned in front of the courthouse. And for you to say that your building is so safe and that there's been no issues is really hard to believe when you're in that same exact neighborhood. And the fact that you're trying to put this housing shelter HTH into a residential neighborhood when most of the other, if not all of the other hotel buyouts have been in business districts, away from schools, away from family neighborhoods. And for you to say that this is gonna be absolutely safe in this neighborhood, and as other people have mentioned, a very high cost neighborhood, and with a lot of targets available for these potential homeless drug users, it's, it is sickening to me. I grew up in Seattle. I've been in Kirkland for 25 years. I've watched Seattle deteriorate into a cesspool. I'm embarrassed by it. I'm sickened by it. I wrote a letter to uh, the city manager, Mr. Triplett. I've heard no response. And so this is the, abs the first time I've had a, a chance to absolutely voice my opinion. So I thank you for your time. And I agree with 90% of the opinions that have been voiced already. Thank you, Kevin. Next speaker. I am not seeing any more hands up. Okay. Thank you all. Oh, okay, Jim. I'd just like to make a couple of quick points before Please. we close, Rick. Thank you. Yes. And I want to thank um, the Houghton Community Council for inviting us tonight, and of course, Leo. And I want to thank everybody for their thoughtful comments. There's just a couple of points I'd like to make as we close, which is first and foremost, I don't know if you had heard my overview at the beginning, but there has been an enormous amount of feedback that has been received by the Kirkland City Council. 
In some ways, it's unprecedented the amount of direct R. Kirkland responses, over 250. And we have sent out to thousands of people multiple statements of the mayor and the city manager. And the feedback has been comprehensive. Like we are getting a robust amount of feedback in the very short period of time that has been available since the county actually signed a purchase and sale agreement. And all of the process points around when you have community meetings uh, and comprehensive uh, civic engagement are really built for uh, the time period when the property has been purchased. That's the way the process is built. There's privacy around the process because it's a real estate transaction. And it's only when the real estate transaction has been secured, the finances have been secured, is when the public process is really designed to begin. And we have been uh, very clear as the city through the mayor's uh, letter on February 15th that there is a significant amount of community engagement planned, town halls, multiple of them, focus groups, individual interviews around those issues that I talked about at the beginning of the meeting tonight, which are the operational issues, which are the lion's share of the concerns that we've heard tonight about safety, prior, uh, primarily safety, but also about uh, just operational things like staffing and the level of wraparound services and the like, physical structure of the area, the operating entity, but who, who is the operating entity and by what rules do they engage? All of that engagement and the significant amount of follow-up associated with it is planned moving forward. And I understand that people, some people say they weren't part of the original rollout or they didn't get an email or they didn't get a call from the county, but, and, and I acknowledge that and understand that, but I do want everybody to know in the weeks uh, uh, following the county's decision to enter into a purchase and deal agreement, there has been an enormous amount of feedback given to the city council. And as Mayor Sweet noted in the last council meeting, we have taken public comment at the last two council meetings, full, uh, a full uh, array of three minute speakers at both of those council meetings. Mayor Sweet did let the community know in a prepared statement at that council meeting that all of the comments that we've been receiving, the robust amount of comments, even in these few weeks, has been informing the city of Kirkland in our communications with the county. All of that work is going into good use and the community engagement process continues should the county move forward and purchase the property. And thank you, Rick, for allowing me to um, at least clear that record. And I think the last point is, this thousand foot buffer, I don't know where that exists. We don't know it in law. Jeremy McMahon can speak to it perhaps, but I don't know of what the gentleman, I know that there was an email that referenced a thousand feet, but it's not a buffer that's recognized in our zoning. And even the uh, shelter, the Helen's Way shelter across the street from my school is within a thousand feet of it. So I just, if you go to our FAQs, you'll see a response to that. Uh, kind of um, question. And you'll see during the, on the FAQs, the continuum of care where you will see the shelters and you'll also see the county criteria for selecting this property. Thank you, Jim. Leo, are there any specific points that you would like to add to any of the, if there are any, any questions that you didn't get a chance to address that or new issues that came up? Um, just to, uh, one, I will follow up uh, with 
we uh, said we would send the slides that we had and there were a couple specific requests for information uh, or I mentioned a couple so we will make sure that we follow up uh, with the council on that. So thank you, uh, Mr. Chair, uh, have it there. Um, and then uh, there were a couple quick, I think, questions that have just solid answers and these were from Karen. So uh, involuntary commitment, yes. Uh, that's possible from these facilities. Uh, I supervise and uh, the team that does all involuntary commitment assessments for all of King County. Uh, so that will be available here as it's available anywhere else. Uh, we, you can relocate for treatment. Uh, there are not a ton of treatment beds that are available in that format uh, across our county, but uh, if you need to go for to secure detox, for example, uh, or to another type of setting, that is possible. Uh, there were a couple of people who asked what happens when somebody is removed or asked to leave a facility. Uh, our uh, uh, operation is to first attempt to transport them to another place. And so often we're actually seeking a different type of facility that might have a better mix of services. Uh, and so uh, we transport people whenever uh, we can. And as a practical example, uh, we do that routinely right now as people leave our county isolation and quarantine facilities. Uh, they tend to say where they wanna go and then we take them there. Um, so uh, just so people can get answers to those quickly. Most of all though, I just wanted to say thank you. Uh, I appreciate the opportunity to share the information we have. Uh, I've been listening the whole time, taking notes. Uh, we are integrating this feedback as uh, we go forward. Um, and uh, I'm committed uh, to making sure that we are setting up a successful facility that can keep everyone safe. And uh, I uh, am heartened uh, by the commitment that I've heard from almost everybody tonight. I don't think anyone disagrees that we have a significant issue in our community that came through loud and clear. Uh, and I think often our disagreements are just on what is the most effective way to actually address that issue. Uh, and I uh, am, am proud to be a part of, of bringing that solution to Kirkland um, and working with you all to design a type of program that can be successful in your unique community. Thank you. I can't thank you guys enough for taking the time. It was outstanding. But, but we're, if, if we wouldn't mind just giving us a few more minutes in case we have. I, I personally would just like to know if uh, there are any key metrics that you're using at your other facilities to measure the success of the facility, including issues related to safety. Absolutely. So uh, as we move into health through housing, uh, some of the key measures that we'll be watching are one, uh, what percentage of residents are enrolled in uh, Medicaid or another insurance? Two, uh, how many of them are able to access treatment on demand, which I've mentioned a couple of times. In other words, that they ask for it and they receive treatment uh, nearly instantly. Uh, three, we'll be looking at the rate at which we have uh, people who have to leave the facility or uh, that we have interventions coming to the facility like local law enforcement or first responders. And four, uh, we talk about a good neighbor agreement, but I wanna be clear that that is not a thing that you do and then you just leave alone, a good neighbor agreement really becomes the construct in which we meet routinely with the community to get feedback about what's working and not working. And again, address issues uh, before they sort of metastasize uh, so that we can solve them early, uh, communicate with each other and keep moving forward. So uh, those are some of the performance measures and each of these will actually have a full blown what we call performance measurement and evaluation plan. Uh, so that we can track the data on the success of the program and the success of locations relative to each other. You Now, you, you're already using that in your other locations then? 
So I, I think with healthcare housing, it's, it's important to note that uh, we have purchased 10 facilities. Two of them are operating and only one of those is operating as a full health through housing facility. So far, the other one is still transitioning from a former shelter use. So uh, we have the vast majority of program design on health through housing in front of us. Permanent supportive housing is a well-established model. Uh, there are more than 6,000 permanent supportive housing units across King County operating right now. Uh, and that is the, the overall model that we'll be implementing at the Kirkland location. And so my only question being, it, it, it would be really uh, instructive if you could share with us, like you're sharing the slides, whatever that performance measurement plan is, if you've already worked out in your other facilities. I, I, I think that would be, I think that would bring some uh, peace of mind to a lot of people if, if they felt confident in that. Um, and then related to that, if, is that all right? Can you do that, Leo? Well, that's me speaking. We'll, we'll work well, together on that. Thank you, Jim. And then the other logical uh, follow-up on this would be if, if, if it sounds like you've already made your mind up, you're gonna, you're gonna proceed with the purchase and then go through the operational safety issue plan. Uh, if there, in that process, there, there is a disconnect where the city can't become comfortable with what is being proposed, then is there an alternative plan or use for that property that, that or is that just, I mean, I, I guess that's a two, twofold question. One it is if there's a disconnect to begin with in getting it set up. And, and secondly, if you get something in, in place that you agree upon, and then it turns out that the performance measures are going so badly that um, it, it's not something that's acceptable, then what is the, the um, exit for that? How, how do you solve that issue? Yeah, absolutely. So I think that, oops, there's a little bit of echo there. Um, when we talk about, you know, and we get this question a lot, uh, under what circumstances would you shut the program down is the yeah, yeah. center of the question. Yes. Um, uh, and I think an important piece of context here is, is we operate thousands of these units across the county and they are successful. Um, and they are successful because A, it's an evidence-based model and B, we, you know, in, we seek out the, the places where we have issues so that we can work with operators to correct them. Um, and so there is not a place um, that I'm aware of where we're operating housing, where we're saying like, this is actually a, a terrible thing and, and we must stop it. So it's a hypothetical question. Is there some set of circumstances at which point, uh, you know, the county would cease operations? Um, and I think what I'm left to rely on is the fact that as a concrete matter, um, we operate thousands of these right now, and that's just not been the case at any of them. Um, so, it you know, housing there's a it is something that particularly in communities that don't have supportive housing, there is a lot that's unknown. And I think part of the process over the next year is to provide the information like you're asking about tonight, Mr. Chair, which we'll happily provide. Um, and then uh, as we go forward, uh, there will inevitably be some issue but the measure of success is how quickly we communicate about that and then resolve and fix it before it becomes a large or redundant issue. Is the performance measurement data that you've had since you've been operating thousands of these units around the county, is that available to the public? Yep, uh, we'll get what we've got for permanent supportive housing. I do wanna 
just highlight the fact that, as I mentioned at the beginning, what we're actually doing with health through housing is enhancing the level of service above and beyond what is available in typical permanent supportive housing. So taking that evidence-based model, but then affording uh, through increased funding, more behavioral health services, more uh, staffing within the facilities. So uh, it is intended to build upon permanent supportive housing as a model. We'll share that information and data, uh, but it's also intended to be more than what is typically provided across those units that we have right now. And does that also mean that the population may not be, we're not talking apples to apples, that the people in the supportive housing with all the services may not be the uh, a good comp to the other uh, properties you have that don't have all those services? Uh, eligibility for permanent supportive housing does generally require somebody to be chronically homeless or at risk of, of chronic homelessness as a functional matter in our community. So um, I think it's always uh, dangerous to compare people and say that they, one is an apple, the other is an apple, but I think as a general matter, they're comparable models. I've dominated the questions. I don't want to spend a lot of time, but if anybody on council has something that uh, you can real concisely ask before we, we move on or comments, I, I would like to give you an opportunity. Is it, raise your hand if you have something to either ask or comment on. Okay. Thank you both so very much. I really think it was very constructive and I appreciate you taking so much time. I know that's a lot of, a lot of your time and we really thank you for it. Thank you very much. Have a nice night. Everybody. Okay. Thank you for having us. Pleasure. Um, so, uh, I guess unless nobody has anything else, we have uh, that would conclude our new business under potential purchase of La Quinta Hotel. And because uh, we uh, had our items from the audience, so we would move on to the miscellaneous zoning code amendments. Oh, I see a hand, John. You're muted. Was, uh, thank you. If no one else on our council has any comments about La Quinta, um, I would like to present something to our council for consideration. That is that. I have some comments. Okay, Bill. Yeah, so, you know, we, the Houghton Community Council vetoed City of Kirkland's zoning code change when they wanted to put marijuana shops within a hundred feet of preschools, it was a thousand feet. And we said, no, we don't want it to be a hundred feet. We don't think that's safe and we vetoed it. So in the whole city of Kirkland, you can have a marijuana shop that's within 100 feet of a preschool, except in Houghton, it still has to be a thousand feet away. And I think this is a similar situation. I think, you know, we can't veto anything here but we can certainly provide a recommendation that we think the city has gone too fast here the parents have some very valid concerns about 12 schools within a one mile square radius of that location. And I think we should put, make our voice here uh, and make a recommendation to the city that they need to stop this process and, and stop the sale right now until we, we get some good answers for all these concerns we have. And that's, that's, what, I'm gonna, that's what I'm gonna discuss, Bill, so yeah. Okay. I, 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 Go ahead, John. Go ahead, John. 
Is, is there anybody else have any comments before I? That's what I was looking for. Okay. I said, I hear none. Um, so I, I hope the words that I give tonight are not misconstrued at all, nor are the actions that I'm hoping our council will take tonight misrepresented. Uh, especially with regards to the current feelings that a certain that the city council has that the Houghton Community Council are obstructionists. That's not the case. We believe in affordable housing. We believe in helping the homeless. We believe in all these things. Um, this request that I'm going to ask tonight of the council is specifically in regards to the process or the lack thereof following the established rules that the for community engage for community engagement. Uh, the city has inaccurately purported that they're ahead of this issue um, from a process standpoint, that they're engaged with the community. I, I, I think that's reach. I believe they're reacting to the community's discovery of this covert action by the county. Uh, how can we trust this process that's laid out, specifically laid out by the county, that engagement and meetings will happen if they're not following their own regulations? The county said that they're supposed to have a meeting, discuss this before a purchase happens. And the county representative seemed tonight to indicate that we're having one now. Well, just to set the record straight, the Houghton Community Council had to force the city to put this on our agenda to allow discussion by the community. To be clear, the city did not want this to happen tonight. Your council, the Houghton Community Council for this neighborhood made this happen. As such, I'm feeling the Houghton Community, uh, the Houghton community Council should fulfill one of its two obligations in its mission statement. The first is to advise the Kirkland City Council. The second, of course, is to veto land use action that we feel does not fit within the comprehensive plan or our neighborhood plans. So with that, I would like to present a resolution for our council to discuss, hopefully move upon and forward to the city council regarding, uh, regarding this issue. I will read this quickly. The resolution of the Houghton Community Council of the city of Kirkland, Washington, concerning the acquisition and development of a homeless shelter at the La Quinta site. Whereas King County is poised to purchase the La Quinta site and place a permanent homeless shelter in the former hotel pursuant to King County ordinance 19366 and Whereas the Kirkland City Council has neither meaningful consulted with nor received approval from the Houghton Community Council regarding the land use, despite the fact that the La Quinta Inn is in the Houghton area where the Houghton Community Council exercises both advisory and approval authority of them over most matters relating to zoning regulations and land use and Whereas King County and the Kirkland City Council have not held a public notice hearing 
for the express purposes of affording members of the public the opportunity to offer input and feedback on the proposed purchase and siting of a permanent homeless shelter at the La Quinta site as required by the King County Ordinance and the Kirkland Municipal Code. And whereas the La Quinta site is immediately adjacent to schools, but would not prohibit registering sex offenders from residing in a homeless shelter, nor does it require any level of sobriety as a condition of housing and freely permits on-site consumption of alcohol, marijuana, and other illicit drugs by residents. Whereas there is no existing social service structure within walking distance to address the needs of the requirements of the residents of a no barrier homeless shelter. Now, therefore, be it resolved that the Houghton Community Council of the City of Kirkland, Washington, as follows. Section one, the Community Council directs the city and the county to conduct a properly noticed public hearing to permit the residents, parents, students, and property owners to provide a meaningful input and feedback on the proposed purchase and siting of a permanent homeless shelter at the Guinta Inn as required by law. Section two, the community council requests that the city council hold an emergency joint meeting no later than March 11th, 2022 to discuss the concerns of the community regarding the proposed purchase and siting of the permanent homeless shelter at the Kinza site. And section three, as there has been no meaningful public hearing process on this critical land use decision to date, the community council hereby formally opposes the purchase of the La Quinta site by the King County and the siting of a permanent homeless shelter at the same under the authority granted of the community council under chapter 12 or uh, 2.12 of the Kirkland Municipal Code. That is what I would like to have discussed and present as a motion passed by the community council to be presented to the Kirkland City Council. Okay, so just for purposes of process, are you making a motion for that to for the council to approve that resolution? I'm making a motion for the Houghton Community Council to approve this resolution to be forwarded to the Kirkland City Council. Okay, is there a second? Is there a second? Second. Okay, it's been moved and seconded. Now it's time for discussion of this resolution. First of all, there was a lot there. Does everybody feel like they were able to fully comprehend everything that that John stated in his resolution? No, and I feel like there was a lot of inaccurate information in that resolution. And I don't feel like we've had enough time to go in and look at all of that. I mean, I think this would take a much longer discussion if you wanna, I, I don't think it's our place to do that tonight but I, it's, it's not a homeless shelter. And I don't know how everybody still thinks it's a homeless shelter after all the time we've spent on this tonight. <laughs> well, you, you could, uh, I'm sure John would accept a friendly, I'm not, I'm not promoting it. I'm just saying that you could call it permanent supportive housing, whatever, I mean. The, but there's a big difference. And, and, well, I, I, and I, I don't disagree with that, but yeah. that's, yeah, I, just, I don't want to, if that was the main issue, that's something. That but, but it also makes me question 
everything else that's in whatever resolution he wants me to sign on to. Right. I'm not going to sign on to something that I have not, I do not thoroughly understand. Right. That's why that was the first question I asked is, is, is it something that you all understand? And if not, do you, do you want to have a point by point discussion of the points that John's making? That's, I guess that's the point of a discussion. We have a motion it's been made and seconded. And so Betsy's point is, A, the, it contains language which is um, not an accurate depiction of the facility. And B, there's conditions that are being stated that she's not comfortable with her ability to comprehend it without further discussion. So is that a fair statement, Betsy? Yes. Yeah. Okay. I'm not trying to put words in your mouth. I'm just trying to move the process along. No, and it's 10 o'clock at night. And yeah. I, 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 no, it's 11 o'clock where I'm at. <laughs> and I've got a tea time tomorrow morning at eight. So this is pushing it for me. <laughs> Having said that. Okay, let, let's try to. And so I want to try to move through this. We do have a motion. It's been seconded. We're in the discussion phase. So I want everybody to have a chance to speak. Betsy has expressed her reservations and I'm not discounting them. I'm, I'm saying we can come back to it. I'd like to have other people have a chance to um, weigh in on this. Anyone else? Wanna, yeah. Yes, Bill. Yeah, so I, I think John, it's a, it's a good intent there, but maybe there's just too much detail. It might be picked at legalistically from um, you know the different references you made. Maybe we can make it much make a much simpler motion and and all approve it and you know it's not that our fault that we're trying to do this at the at a late hour with not a lot of information and time on it because that's the position that the city put us in yeah <laughs> so we have nobody to blame except for the city council and the city management and the point of this point of this memo that's exactly it there's no yeah. there's been no process yeah so i think john if you can just maybe strip out a lot of the the detail and just hit the main points i think most of us who agree with it will be able to vote for it tonight. Yeah, I agree with you, Bill. I think it's uh, very meaty, but the crux of the issue is the, the lack of process. So if we can boil that down, I think we're getting somewhere. Okay, Kristen spoke um, and Betsy spoke. Ruth. Um, I'm agreeing with that, John. I really like what you said. It totally makes a lot of sense. Um, the whole thing that the city, that Jim, I mean, I think they, I liked what the two men said today, but Jim's comment that they're getting all this feedback and a robust conversation and whatever, technically they're not supposed to be doing that, right? Until the property closes, right? I mean, I think it's reactive and I think um, to the accidental, I mean, this was found out back in September when um, on a next door app accidentally. And that's how that, how we found out, we didn't find out through the city of Kirkland and they're trying to make it feel, making people see that, oh no, we're doing all this listserv and everything. Well, that's after the fact. And I think that's an, one important point you need to say in that you did mention that. And I think that's an important part in the process is that the, the feedback I was hearing from people as I talked to them was, again, the lack of transparency with the city council. And this feeds right into that. So if we can get it fewer words, and does it have to be a resolution or can it be a, a number one that 
our advisory, um, or you know, our first one of our two criteria is we can give an advisory. So can we do that and then, and still request the March 11th joint meeting if that's what people want? To be honest with you, in the time that I've been on the council, I don't remember us actually um, making motions on uh, an advisory role, but we have we're absolutely empowered to do so. And and it seems like if you're going to do it it probably needs to be in the form of a resolution or else okay. it doesn't really. I, yeah, that's true. I, that's I don't know true. what, how else is it going to be structured? Yeah, so that's true. I think there, you know, if we're serious about using that, uh, that uh, whatever power or authority uh, to advise, then I think it would need to be in that format. Um, so Larry. Well, I'm uh kind of aligned with Betsy as well as with Bill's decision to kind of narrow it down. I am not ready to fully say the community council hereby formally opposes both the purchase by King County and the siting of that. In total, I think it would be at this time or prior to a more formal public process out here. I just don't have enough information to go that far. So maybe uh, John, having heard the and, and I, I you know I, I, I want to move this along and get to a point where we can all come to an agreement on it. I do think it needs to be a resolution if we're going to do anything. And I and I'm not saying we do or don't, but I hearing that we we have I think general support for the the, la the lack of process and transparency, and it's just how it's stated. And, and I don't think there's anything wrong with advising. I don't really seriously expect city council is going to change anything, but that doesn't mean that we can't at least be on record and giving them that advice. Cause this is a pretty serious matter. It's one of the, I think it's one of the major land use decisions that have come. that has been in the Houghton area since, you know, for if, a long time. If, if this was for my hope and prayer is that it's completely successful. Yeah. If it is not successful, there is, there is, there has been no meaningful discussion of how it is unwound. Even with the direct question, Rick, the yeah. answer was, we have no data. It's never happened before. They're always successful. I've personally driven by three of these and I went, oh my God. So I, I just, I, I am, I'm perplexed. I am yeah. absolutely perplexed. I wholeheartedly believe in helping people. I, I'm involved in all sorts of activities to do that. I absolutely believe in this, but with what we've been told, how it's happened, my level of trust is diminished. Yeah. Can you, John, taking the feedback that everybody has provided, can you uh, maybe narrow it down, addressing the, the concerns and, and you know, and maybe just pick just a, a, a abbreviated version of of your resolution that maybe would would address the concerns and and perhaps rewording it from the the homeless encampment or whatever it was to uh, the um, this you know what what we're really looking at the no permanent, I, permanent supportive housing supportive housing yeah. Okay. Uh, what I'm, I might ask is, uh, since Betsy made the first comments about inaccuracies, if it would be possible if 
Betsy and I, and maybe Larry and or Ruth, well, we can't, we, there can only be two or three of us, but maybe help make sure that I get everything accurate uh, in the document and whittle it down as much as possible instead of me just doing it by myself. Um, I don't know that we have the luxury of time because we can't pass anything. It, it, either we pass it tonight or it won't be passed till the next time we meet. So, and at that point, it's kind of a, and again, I don't think it's going to change the outcome, but at least it's, uh, you know, if, if, if we want to express our um, opposition to the, the process um, or our concerns about the process, then this would be the only time we're going to have to do it, I think. If, well, so. Can you, can you look at it and just, take out some of the warehouses and, 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 and not use the homeless, uh, you know, use permanent supported housing and, and see if you can come up with. John, can you, can you, can you, can you distill down into two sentences what you want to, what, what, what is it that you want to happen from this? What is it you're trying to do? Just, just, just say that we're not, we don't like the process. We think the process has been uh, not transparent and that um, they're, they're not following the processes they're supposed well, to. It's a tiny bit beyond that. It is, there needs to be meaningful community engagement, which has begun, is underway. <laughs> the questions and concerns need to be addressed in such a manner to uh, resolution, whether or not people like those is, is a different question, but we have to have answers about what happens if it doesn't work, what happens, what happens, what we have to have answers. And, and the answer that we're getting is it depends on the operator we pick. I, right. I don't but, you, but you understand that we're going to be involved in choosing the operator. If we're, I don't, I don't really our council. No. No, but as citizens, as citizens, we can be involved in this. I mean, we can, as citizens, we can get involved in all of these things. We can hold their feet to the fire. We can be on the committees that, that are interviewing these coordinators. Like I said, <clears throat> I have a family member who he, he knows really good coordinators, you know, who has worked in these things. This guy's an ex-Marine. You, know, you know, I mean... There's ways, I'm hopeful that there's ways of actually shaping this, of getting involved. I do, I, I wish that the city had, had done outreach sooner, but it does sound like there is a process that will be involving people. So I think- that, that is the crux of the issue? Huh? Isn't what? that in essence the crux of the issue? That you are hopeful there will be community involvement. However, John, what you're stating is up to this point, there hasn't been the required amount of community involvement. So what are the assurances that community involvement will be up to par moving forward? Well, I don't agree with that because I we heard from everybody that they can't start the formal process until the the thing has been bought, right? They and they have to do the that's that, that's one of my big problems with this, Betsy. With the, the argument that I made, because it, it, it was pretty much, you know, I took it, I took it upon myself 
to insist that we add this to the agenda. And there was significant resistance from the city to do so. And in, in literally the, the point that I made that the, the, the language on their website, it, it doesn't say that it's after the purchase that you engage. It's, it's, you're supposed to engage during the, uh, it, it, it's, it, it, they specify you don't engage the public until you have the property in contract and you are not at risk of having the price adjusted. And they are, they're at that, they've been at that point for a way, uh, for some time. So they, they did have, they have had a window where they could have engaged the public. They just chose not to. And Jim's point was, well, they were looking to King County to be the lead in this. They're the lead agency. And I said, well, Jim, you know, you're, you're, you have a responsibility to the citizens. And, and if King County is not taking the initiative, then damn it, the city should. I mean, and if the city's not going to, then I, I'm not going to not have a discussion at our council meeting because the city, and that's really the way it went. And I just, I said, words mean things. It's in the King County ordinance. The, there's, it's not, it's black and white. It's not gray. And so that was my problem. And I, I just, I think the process has just been a failure to that. There should have been a more public process, just responding to people through emails and through the website. That's not, that's not what they haven't really had uh, the opportunity for interchange and, and, and to challenge the assumptions and, you know, I look at this, Betsy, I, every, every decision I make, I try to put myself in the shoes of the people that are most immediately affected. You know, if I'm living right next door, if my kids are going to school right now, if I've got a, if I operating a business right next door, how would I feel? That's the way I look at it. Right. And, and that's, and I have a real problem that those people, you, you heard it, the business, the business owner said they had not had any contact from That's not right. That's what concerns me is that that's terrible. That this, yeah, that that's what concerns me. So I feel like those are the specific concerns we should address because yes. those are facts. Yes. Those are facts, you know. And um so that's so John, take just the essence, just just take the essence of your points, just distill it down to the, the very basics. Because I think it's appropriate to at least you know, call them out and, 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 and not to be vindictive, just to say this, you haven't followed the process that should have been followed. And, you know, we're going to call you on it. And, and then they, and then they just send out like this, uh, you know, they all have the same words, the document that they send out, you know, that's, yes, yes, yes. yes. <laughs> you know, it, it's not just call them out. Um, John's, a pr proposal was to ask them to stop the process until they have an emergency hearing with all the people who are affected by this. That's the yeah. key thing, we're asking them to stop. We're, we're, we're making a recommendation in our advisory capacity of the Houghton Community Council that because they didn't follow the process, because there's so many concerns that we've heard from parents, from business owners, from neighbors, uh, to just stop. This doesn't make sense. These 12 the mile radius yeah. is ins insanity. 
And I think the other part that we also through this process haven't heard is we've heard a few people tonight about those in favor and what the real issues are. That's where I don't know. I don't know what's what, where the reality really sits. I, I feel for the people that are having these issues uh, with the schools and other types of safety concerns. But at the same time, I would like to get more information on the other side and yeah. say, how do these things really work yeah. out here? And I don't know that yet. <laughs> That's what I was trying to get to. That's why I was looking for the data, you know. <laughs> and that should have been part of the process. Mm-hmm. Right. Those are the those are the legitimate questions. So I could certainly have. support a recommendation to uh, because of the the need for a more thorough public engagement process, transparent, uh, that the city of Kirkland working with King County basically puts the project on hold until this can go through and we can actually have some of those questions answered uh, and discussed. Yes, we can get the frequently asked questions that Jim referred to quite a bit but we can't ask that page, what about this? What about that? It's written word, it's, it's not a dialogue. And how do we know those are the most frequently asked questions? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> so, so John, can you go ahead and read that one part there at the bottom that addresses that comment that Larry just made? Read, reread that, putting it on pause, or that emergency meeting one. Yeah, the Houghton Community Council requests the City Council hold an emergency joint meeting no later than March 11, 2022, hopefully tying that uh, sometime around the closing date, to discuss the concerns the Houghton Community Council has regarding the proposed purchase and siting of a, uh, uh, a permanent homeless site at the La Quinta Inn. So that's that's probably it. That we, we just need to say... We'd like to stop this and have a meeting, whether it's with us or just the Kirkland City Council and the community. What do you guys think? Well, you probably at least want to reference the lack of, of a transparent public process that, that is why we're, you know, you don't want to just make that recommendation or that request, but you want to cite why. You, you had all kinds of whereases. There's pick, pick the one that addresses the lack of public process. Like notification, it's like the notification of the the schools and the businesses is the big one, right? Yeah, that's huge. That's mm-hmm. yeah, out of here. Uh, King County and City of Kirkland has not held a public hearing for the express purposes of affording members of the public the opportunity to offer input and feedback on the proposed purchase and siting of a permanent homeless shelter at the La Quinta site as required by King County Ordinance, King County Municipal Code. You want to keep that piece. Right. Other than the, <laughs> Betsy's got a heartburn with the homeless. You know, you wanted to go with a Make it permanent, permanent supportive, supportive housing. housing. Yeah. But I don't know if they are, are, are they required to have a public hearing at this stage? I'll, I'll read it to you. Just, just, I, I did read it earlier, but I'll read it again because yeah, it, this it. is, this is their King County ordinance. It was passed in December of last year. Mm-hmm. And it's, it says that, the, they approved an ordinance um, that states, quote, King County and the city 
hold at least one public meeting in which members of the public may offer input and feedback to consider. The public meeting must be timed to occur after the county has negotiated an agreement and at a point in the process that the public meeting does not risk an increase of price. The purpose of the meeting will be to inform a joint decision by city and county staff on whether to proceed or how to proceed. Now, it's clear from that wording that this is clearly supposed to happen before the sale. Not, not a public hearing, a public Oh, meeting. yes. It, yeah, it does. A public, okay, one, it said, must hold at least one public meeting in which members of the public may <laughs> offer input and feedback to consider. Yeah, that is not, but John had a public hearing in there. They're, as we know, that's very- Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So change it to, yeah, let's, words words matter. So change yeah. it from hearing <laughs> to meeting. And, and although they have taken testimony at city council meetings now, which Jim or whoever- It would, it would just be said. comments at the, not testimony. That's nine minutes. <laughs> yeah, that is not, that was not joint with the council. Did this say that it had to be a joint with the county? I, I, the meeting? That's what it should be, of course. But, well, but the, you know, Betsy, I would contend that, 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 that having the comments at the city council meeting is, is about as constructive and meaningful as what the city council had with us when right. we discussed their reasons right. for sunsetting us. Right. I'm, not <laughs> arguing, I'm not arguing that at all. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get them to not argue that that is what it is. Because did your ordinance from the whatever you just read did it's king say, county ordinance did they say that the that meeting had to be the city with the county had to have with the county had yeah to have? it says king county and the city hold. that has not happened no that has not happened no right and so that is have... the reason right there because they have not held that meeting Absolutely. and this is at least one yeah, at least, one. yeah. I mean, it's the, the intent is clear, and yeah. and they've they've absolutely not met that requirement. Yeah, so I don't think they could argue any of our language if we say that if you quoted that, and they have not done that, and it's not a public hearing, it's a public meeting, and it's if we say all the words right, I think we're good. Yeah. I just don't want them to say this was. This is not an accurate thing. Right. Community Council doesn't know what they're talking about. Yeah, picking I it would, apart. I yeah. would say the stuff you just read, Rick, including citing the ordinance that it was, should yeah. be a whereas. Yeah, that's the whereas. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, wasn't that, John? I think you referenced that ordinance, didn't you? I did. King County Ordinance 19366. Uh -huh. yeah. I think you should specify the, that those clauses. Right. That, okay. So let, let's try Let's take a swing at this. <laughs> so our resolution would be that whereas King County ordinance 19366 requires King County and Kirkland to hold at least one public meeting in which members of the public may offer input and feedback to consider. <laughs> um, I'm going to cut out uh, the, the timing issue. And the purpose of the meeting uh, is to inform a joint decision by city and county staff on whether to proceed. And that has, whereas that has not occurred, then uh, we therefore 
recommend. Yeah, yeah. I don't know, John, uh, Rick, I think we should keep the timing issue in only because the county is saying that they didn't have to let anyone know until everything closed. And the thing that bugs me is they're calling it a private thing, but they're using taxpayer dollars. So yeah. I don't understand the privacy part, but um, I think that timing needs to be in there because we're in the middle of that timing and they haven't done what they need to do. Yeah, the timing is very understandable. Normal real estate acquisitions are handled through a very private process. Um, but in this case, they're saying that once they have it in contract and right. they're not at risk of a price increase, they've right. got it tied down at that point, right. then they have a responsibility to engage the public. Yeah, but and they're so leading us to believe that it's after it closes. Yeah, and that's just disingenuous. Right. That's mm -hmm. right. So I think I agree with Ruth that you should you shouldn't keep that timing thing as part of it. I think okay, so. I'll reread it. <laughs> Whereas. King County Ordinance 19366 uh, requires King County and Kirkland hold at least one public meeting in which members of the public may offer input and feedback to consider uh, the acquisition. I have to insert an acquisition of uh, a permanent supporting housing uh, property and the public meeting must be, and whereas the public meeting must be timed to occur after the county has negotiated an agreement and at a point in the process that the public meeting does not risk an increase of price. And whereas that condition does currently exist, but the meeting has not been held and that, and whereas the purpose of the meeting is to inform a joint decision by city and county staff on whether to proceed with the purchase or how to proceed with the purchase. And whereas that has not occurred, then. Then his other. Then John's. Then John's. Uh, what was the last thing, John? What, what was your. The community council request the city council to hold an emergency joint meeting no later than March 11th, 2022 to discuss the concerns of the community council regarding the proposed purchase and siting of a permanent supportive housing um, at La Quinta site. See, I don't want them to meet with us. I want them to have that public meeting. No, I got it. Okay, so, so uh, we, need to, we need to change that wording. <laughs> to discuss the concerns of the community. <laughs> but the, you want to clarify that the joint meeting is not between the city council and community council. It's with King County. King and County. So <laughs> make that. <clears throat> the community council requests the city council hold an emergency joint meeting no later than March 11th, 2022, to discuss the concerns of the community regarding the proposed purchase and siting of the permanent supportive housing, shelter building. Uh, no, no shelter. No, yeah. no shelter. But John, we, we don't want a yeah. joint meeting between us and the city. I didn't say community. No, health. you but did. It, you said there, it's your, you said HCC requests a, a joint that the KCC have a joint meeting, which in, infers that it's with HCC. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Does this yeah, change it to say HCC requests <laughs> 
or demands that uh, KCC have a joint meeting with King County. Representatives of King County. That, that, yeah. King, that King County and, and the Kirkland City Council hold a joint meeting. Those two. Yeah. yeah. Those two. King yeah. County. <clears throat> yeah, the community council requests the city council hold an emergency joint meeting with King County. There you go. Known later in the March 11th to discuss the concerns of the community regarding the proposed purchase and siting of a permanent housing shelter. But we don't just, yeah, and, and, and sure they don't, we don't just want a meeting between them. We want it to be a public meeting. <laughs> yeah, where the members of the public may <laughs> offer input yeah. and feedback to consider right. and we inform. We don't want them talking together anymore. <laughs> and inform a joint decision. Right. Yeah. With more than three pros and three cons. Yeah. Allowed. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And noticed. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Noticed. <clears throat> well, so noticed public meeting with King County no later than March 11th to discuss the concerns of the community. Well, this I don't, what is the, there's no magic to the, what's the magic with no later than March 11th? I mean, it's when it, it prior, it should just be prior to closing a purchase of the property. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we can't force them to have a meeting at a certain date. Yeah, no, I don't see any point in saying no later than, just say prior to a purchase of yeah. the property being consummated. I'm surprised that they didn't have to um, put a public sign, public yeah. notice sign, right? Yeah. Because that's why we always argued against take not having, because they used, they wanted to take away the public notice signs years ago and Houghton Community Council said, no, people don't, shouldn't have to go yeah. to the city website every day. I, <laughs> just by now. Yeah. I, Jeremy, yeah. I want to, Jeremy's been so. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> Jeremy, before uh, we, you know, you, you've been very, uh, yeah, uh, I don't know, patient, patient. <laughs> and, and, and uh, non-judgmental. Do you have any comments that you'd like to, you know, advise us or, or suggest in this recommendation, this advice that we're offering to the city council? No, I mean, I think I'm being quiet because this is largely outside of my subject matter of expertise. So um, <laughs> I don't, I have certain concerns about the introduction of an ordinance at a meeting without. Oh, it's not an ordinance. I'm sorry, resolution. Resolution. Um, but I think I understand where you're going with it. So I think as long as you can clearly articulate that, um, I'm assuming John is kind of the keeper of the verbiage of that and the motion or the vote would ultimately authorize the chair to sign this resolution. So I think if that's where you're headed, then probably just keep heading in that direction and but just make sure the wording is clear yeah that, that's what we're trying to get is a me yeah. meeting of the minds that we're all on the same page on this i feel like i feel like we've gotten there is how you guys john do you want to I'll, I'll read it uh again the houghton community council requests the kirkland city council hold a noticed public meeting with king county prior to the purchase of the La Quinta site to discuss the concerns of the community regarding the proposed siting of a permanent supportive housing project. But no, we've, but we've lost, we've lost all that stuff that Rick had. I think, oh, I think you want to say, 
That's, that's so the I, whereas. Isn't that the whereas? Well, but but I think you want to be sure that you specify in our request that the public may offer input and feedback to inform a joint decision by city and county staff yes. on whether to proceed with the purchase. Right now, it still sounds like you just want the county and the city to meet. Yeah, which doesn't and accomplish much. <laughs> they're already <Yeah>. meeting. <laughs> 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 yeah. Do you okay. guys feel comfortable enough that if John and I, John, I think you've got, you know, you, you've, you've got your language between that and this ordinance. Basically, we're incorporating the ordinance. Yeah. Essentially, you, mm -hmm. that's our whereas and what we're requesting. And we're just simply saying, don't, we, we're, we're saying, don't proceed with this until you at you least. Follow the, until you follow the process. Follow yep. the process. <laughs> Yep. Yeah, exactly. You guys good with that? Yes. Well, yes. There's, there's really two paragraphs so far. The first is stating all the King County language as to what their rules are. <laughs> and then the second is that the uh, Oden Community Council <clears throat> wants the Kirkland City Council and King County to follow what they said they would follow. That's you right. Know, right. We could do it in a very abbreviated format as far as the whereas. You could simply say, whereas the um, King <laughs> County and the city of Kirkland have failed to, or no, yeah, wait a sec, it's not a, it's not a city of Kirkland requirement, it's King County. Whereas King County has failed to uh, follow the process provided by Ordinance 1936 uh, for public, uh, public process related to acquisition of properties for supportive housing. You know, that's our whereas, then we go, then we, we our recommendation is that um, we delay, they delay any acquisition, any closing of the purchase until, and then we go through the specifics. They have a public meeting in which members of the public may offer input and feedback that um, will be used to inform a joint decision by the city and county staff on whether to proceed or how to proceed with the purchase. Is that, that's, pretty simple and clean doing it that way instead of repeating the same thing in the whereas's as you have in the in the recommendation you guys good with that jeremy's rolling his eyes <laughs> all i can tell you is it's it's almost midnight my time and i got an eight o'clock tea time and a six o'clock exercise class so i'm really pushing it <laughs> um how about I'm it what you said rick what you said I'm so good with what you said. So I am. I am too. John, would you consider that a friendly amendment? Absolutely. Okay. Is there a second to that friendly amendment? Second. Okay. <laughs> Any further discussion? Discussion. Discussion. All in favor, say aye. 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 Opposed. Hey. Thank you, guys. <laughs> so, John, you guys will trust John and me to get it. You know, just in, in a format that we can. Yeah. Uh, present and they got a city council meeting tomorrow night so i suppose it's probably something that you can send it to all of us when you're done yes we yes still, we still have to do this right we but, do we still have <laughs> but just on a point of order uh yes. wasn't that vote just on the friendly amendment yes yeah we did oh, the amendment to vote the, the motion. God, and i'm usually pretty good with parliamentary procedure but that's an excellent point larry <laughs> all we did is approve the the amendment now we have to vote on the uh, prime on the uh the initial uh, revised. It's getting late. Yeah, the revised motion. Yeah, the, the, the motion, motion as amended. Yes. 
Okay. All in favor of the original amendment, uh, the original motion as amended, signify by saying aye. 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 Opposed? Nay. Thank you very much. I appreciate the help. Thank you, John, for doing all that work. Yes, that's absolutely. Also, I just want to reach out to all of the people that have been engaged this evening. We are very, very happy you're engaged in your community. I think our community is what it is because of people like you that care and, and get involved. So we truly, truly appreciate it. Thank you very yeah, much. Very much so. Okay, we do have one more item of unfinished business. It's final action on miscellaneous zoning code amendments. Jeremy, how quickly can we handle that one? Well, um, I have about a one hour presentation. <laughs> <laughs> I, can I you cut it down to about five minutes? <laughs> I, if you would like to not go with the presentation, it's pretty, everything's pretty straightforward. It's what you've seen um, at your meeting in December. There's one nuance that we noted in the memo and that's we missed one of the zones in, in one of the Hank zones, it's in, Kirk, in uh, Houghton jurisdiction. So we will circle back around and pick that up in the next set of right. miscellaneous code amendments. So apologies for missing that, but otherwise it's all really straightforward stuff for the community okay. council. So um, we've got resolution 2022-2 before you. Okay, uh, so. Does anybody have any questions or concerns for Jeremy on that item? So, the chair would welcome. You're on, you're on, you're on mute, John. Oh, John. Okay. Yes, John. One question, uh, Jeremy. The um, I know that there was um, a. Uh, a white paper uh, produced that went before the hearing examiner that discussed uh, relationship of properties and what constitutes the minimum of five cottage units. That's not actually codified. Is that something that is taken care of in an administrative process through a white paper or will it be brought forward in the next major amendments? Yeah, so that um, what John's referencing is a zoning code interpretation relative to um, to cottage projects that was um, appealed, upheld by the city's hearing examiner. So that stands as has the same effect as code, but it will be bundled when we come back um, in the future for a more comprehensive set of amendments to the um, housing uh, regulations. We would include that in that. Perfect. Thank you. Okay, so with that, the chair would welcome a motion to approve potent resolution number 2022-2, adopting ordinances 04780 and 04781 as approved by city council on February 1, 2022. Have a motion to that effect. So moved by Bill Goggins. Is there a second? Second. Okay, it's been seconded by Ruth Wright. Any further discussion? Discussion, discussion, all in favor say aye. 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 Opposed? Okay, that passes. Jeremy, is there anything else for the good of the order that we... Uh... Uh, no, that's good. Thank you all so very much uh, for persevering through this, but I feel good about the, what we've done. I really think it was really worthwhile. People brought up great points. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, he really I, did. And all their emails were amazing. Yeah, I mean, yes. this thoroughly vetted and articulate and. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm really, I'm really pleased. And uh, I just wish that, that it had happened and that it had been had, had, had it, that the city council had been the ones that had initiated it and that it actually influenced their process before they made a recommendation. But Great. No, I'm so glad you did this, Rick. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, you know, guys. that petition they referenced, there's a, I looked at it today, there's 3,547 people have signed that petition. Wow. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of people. Yeah. 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 That's huge. Okay. Well, uh, you know, it's, it's uh, getting late and I appreciate all of you sticking out and sticking through this and I uh, hopefully we'll see you again in March. <laughs> so, I'm calling this meeting adjourned. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Have a good night. Good night, all. Good night everyone. Good night. Good night. Thank you all.